podcast is brought to you by Uh, 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 here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our 12th and final installment of our Under the Influence series, where each month over the course of our second season, myself along with my special guests have been taking an inquisitive look at two of the films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our 12th and final film that we will be placing under the microscope this month is Tarantino's self-proclaimed magnum opus, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the films that we will be reviewing are Jesse Moses' documentary, The Bandit, and Phil Carlson's The Wrecking Crew. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show, for his very first time, the host of the Fanacheck Podcast. I'm talking about the man himself, Mr. Fanacek. Welcome, Mr. Fanacek, and may Tarantino be with you always. Oh, and also with you. Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. Well, I have to uh, confess that you emailed me almost a year ago, and I got the email, and you asked to be on the Once Upon a Time episode, and at the time I got your email, I'd already recorded it, and I meant to respond, and then life happens, and my head went up my ass, and then all of a sudden, I'm looking to finish this season up, and I realized that the people I scheduled to be the guests for this episode were unable to. And I happened to be just going back through my emails and saw yours and said, oh my God, I never responded to this man. He probably thinks I'm a fucking douchebag. Probably wants <laughs> nothing to do with this podcast. <laughs> Completely legitimate. And I felt, oh, here I am going to reach out to him. He's going to tell me to fuck myself. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to him, see if he would actually want to come on and talk about this film or the films that We'll talk about that loosely inspire uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And thankfully, you did say yes. And you'll also be joining me again in season three, which I'm very excited for. So welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about your podcast, Fanacheck, where it gets its name, and what it's all about. Yeah, so, you know, Fanacheck kind of dives into all things film and television, mostly obscure stuff, a lot of 70s stuff. When I was coming up with a name for it, I, I thought the show Banachek, George Picard's show from, from the 70s, you know, his mystery series, it really uh, kind of, it was like perfect embodiment of what I wanted to do, where it was obscure, but not too obscure. So I just kind of turned Banachek into Fanachek, and, and then it was born. Season one was all about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, ironically. So I did an entire season about all the actors mentioned in the movie and some of the actors in the movie. And uh, from there, I started focusing on things like uh, movies that were turned into TV shows, uh, I did now right now I'm doing I'm on season four and I'm focusing on a lot of my favorite 70s actors. I've done episodes on Robert Culp, Vic Tabak, Telly Savalas. So I just 
I just love that stuff, man. I just love it lights me up. So I love old film and, and TV. And that's why Once Upon a Time in Hollywood happened is like the perfect storm of my favorite Quentin Tarantino and 1969 and the Manson murders. And I was like, this is it. This film was made for me. <laughs> so so yeah, man, thanks for asking. And, and again, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for saying yes because man, did I have some egg on my face? It's like he's definitely telling me to go fan and check myself for sure. And thankfully you did it. And yeah. I have listened to your show. And your very first episode I thought was awesome that your wife was your first guest. And I thought that's very cool. And she reminded me a little bit of my wife in the fact, well, my wife wouldn't exactly stay on for a whole episode. I can tell you that. However, she was very endearing to you. Like she was listening and letting you just like spout out all this excitement. I could feel the passion and I could just feel it like I could feel my wife sitting there on the other side of me going, just like shaking her head at me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. That's great. You know I mean? so. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the jokes about my podcast is it really is just me talking incessantly at people. <laughs> so, like I'm, I kind of get the joke that maybe not everyone's interested in what I'm talking about, but um, no, she's a good sport for sure. And then uh, recently you had an episode where you were, it was the, <laughs> the battle of the dicks. And you had a response from someone that was giving you was giving you shit. And I felt like you missed some low-hanging fruit. I think you told them to go fuck themselves. You should have just told them to go suck a dick. Like, I feel like you had that moment. <laughs> yeah. You're battling the dicks. You just tell them to... Yeah, isn't that fun about people who just... They have no idea what goes into making a podcast. Like, you have no yeah. idea if you don't do it. And I'm glad that you listen, whoever is out there listening. But it is a real labor of love. Like, there are times my wife has thought about probably leaving me because I spend so much time cultivating this. You know, like, yeah. I'm in the midst of creating... You know, I've just finished creating all the graphical elements for next season. I'm getting all the stuff we're out for you know the the questions i'll ask how how the each episode is going to roll and i guess it's probably a good thing because now she knows i'm not cheating on her because i'm the only, <laughs> the, only the only other love of my life is the podcast you know so yeah. but it's just always fun when someone just kind of like gives you some shit and it's like do you actually do a podcast do you have any idea what this takes to do and probably like you i, I don't want to assume but i do this i mean barely make anything on this you know like it's maybe from just you know the spotify ads that you get them sure. like it's so small like yeah. i will never make joe low, rogan you numbers you know what i mean like this is <laughs> all do i do this because i love doing it so right. when people talk shit about you you know anyone i'm just glad you responded like told me to go fuck themselves it's just it was nice to hear it's so funny because like you i mean mo again like you said thanks for listening I'm, I'm i'm really appreciative of it but some of the hate you get is crazy and i'll tell you it's funny you brought up that that episode about the dicks is i was just comparing dick Sargent to dick york their entire careers not mm -hmm. just the darrens from bewitched and I got a lot of hate for that. This has been done. This Darren, Brad Darren, I was like, I don't think you understand. I'm doing their entire careers. It's not, he went just like 3% of everything I'm doing. But then he get a lot of love. Like I did an episode about this actor, Jan Michael Vincent, who Airwolf. Exactly. Love him. It's kind of really for being a train wreck in life, yeah. I think. He was really handsome, but just drugs. And he I think he had an amputation before he died. It was just really rough. And and I have a real appreciation for him. Actually, because of Quentin Tarantino, uh, he talked about him a lot in um Video Archives podcast. Mm -hmm. So I so I did an episode on him and I got a lot of love for that. Like it was a shocking amount of people reaching out to me just saying thank you for that. And I love Jan Michael Vincent. And so you never know what you're gonna get, but you're right. And you're an artist. Like now that I've seen what goes, you know, because you you talked to me about mm -hmm. uh for it or doing some stuff next season yeah you mapped out your year like you're an artist man like i'm research heavy but it's pretty half-assed production quality. <laughs> <laughs> it i mean when i started we got lucky i got very lucky we were we myself and a friend who I, at the time i was working for a company <laughs> that we will lovingly call the fruit stand and you can figure out what company may or not be named after a fruit and um we just were like we want to do a podcast and just talk about and at like movies and i thought maybe tarantino and then i was like there's no way. There's gonna be like a thousand of those. So let's 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 focus on one of my favorite actors, which would be Nicolas Cage. And so we started talking about him and then realized that there was more Nicolas Cage podcasts out there. 
and Tarantino podcast. Well, we started the week, and I mean the week we had, you know, you knew that there was something going on with COVID because it was still over in China, and then, you know, you heard some stuff. We had no idea the shutdown was coming. So we started the week before, and then the shutdown comes. And so the best thing about COVID was I learned a lot more about, like, when we started recording, it was like with... um AirPods, awful. It was awful. But it was it really was like a, a working through. Like it was like in on the ground floor, figuring it out. You know what I mean? So yeah. it has definitely, you know, I've definitely worked at it for now we're gonna come up four years soon. But yeah, but then being able to do the Tarantino's kind of going out of my own, you know, that lead singer thing. You know, he's kinda I don't, I don't yeah, need yeah, you. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I understand. Uh, oh, no, yeah. It's great. I love that the idea that it's the Church of Tarantino as well. I grew up in New York yeah. in the Roman Catholic world there. So I love it, man. I dig it. Well, I don't know if you heard the episode where I described it is if you watch the, I don't you know, there's so many different versions of like the Pulp Fiction DVD and Blu-ray that comes out there. So I don't know what stays and what they've gotten rid of over the years because you only own so many of them. You know, like I'm a Tarantino fan, but after a while, it's like, how much more money do you want me to put down for the 90th you know, <laughs> rendition of this fucking film? For an additional 11 seconds of <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but there is a behind the scenes where they talk about, I think it, it was, it had, there was like a Roger Ebert thing. And then there's an extra behind the scenes where they started to talk about how Pulp Fiction comes out right as the internet is kind of coming to life. You know, like it's finally being pushed to the public and we're starting to use the internet for all the horrible things that we still use it for. But I always tell people like the early days of the internet is like really dark times. Like there was like really no one paying attention to it. <laughs> no one knew how bad human humans were going to be with it. Yeah. But there was a chat group for the first one for talking about Tarantino and they named it the Church of Tarantino. And then that changed over to, I think, maybe the Tarantino Archives. Because whenever I typed that in before I started this, it would kind of direct me to the Tarantino Archives, which was a place I used to go get a lot of information about Tarantino, you know, before the days of now social media, and now we've got the Reddits and all stuff. But it was like a mm -hmm. one-stop shop where it would you, know, you could kind of find some information out about him. And so I thought, in Tarantino style, the great thing to do is the first place to talk about him, and now the only actual podcast out there talking about Tarantino, it would be great to name it, take the name and use it, since it wasn't being used anymore. So I just basically adopted it, and like Tarantino with the Inglorious Bastards, and I just said, it's mine now. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I did I did, you know, I did a Tarantino thing. I just took someone else's stuff and said, no, now it's mine. So thank yeah, you very yeah, much for taking it. I love it. Now, we're talking on a side, kind of, we're talking about Once Upon a Time, in mm -hmm. Hollywood. And it's always a great movie to talk about, but it's always bittersweet for me because it means a season is coming to an end, which means that like all the work I did before is like, oh, it's wrapping up. And now it's like, oh, got to start again. So like when I get back to, well, next year will be a whole different, different ball game. But every, you know, the last two years now, every time we get towards December, it's Christmas time, the year's yeah. about to end and it's once my time with Hollywood. Where does this film rank for you or what does it mean to you? And I can see the posters behind you and you don't just have the poster, you've got a Rick Dalton poster in there as well. Yeah. So well, I've got a lot going on, man. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> what is it about Once Upon a Time that just, you know, how did you embrace it when you went to see it? Did you expect it to be the film that it seems to have become for you out of his uh, catalog? Well, it's what it's grown into for me. You know, I love all Tarantino stuff, you know, um, so I'm a big Tarantino fan. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, though, for me personally, is probably the most important piece of art of the last, like, 30, 40 years. Wow. It's really important to me. Um, I, I think that, again, if you look at my podcast, I, I love, I miss the Rick Daltons of the world, the Robert Culp's, the George mm -hmm. Bart, you know, which he, he references. Those guys, the Telly Savalas, the ones who were these TV stars and couldn't quite, you know, make it in movies the way like McQueen or Eastwood did, right? Um, and they would just, they would just kind of work for 20, 30 years. Um, who knows what kind of 
money they were making, probably decent money, and they are all kind of smokers and drinkers, and you don't have a lot of people like that anymore. So I, I love that. I love that old television actor. I don't think we have any more just television actors who, because I remember being a kid watching, you know, whether you're watching Columbo or Love Boat, whatever it is, it's like, oh, the guy from that show is the bad guy in this show. And, and, and I feel like that's lost now, you know? So I love that world. Juxtaposed, too, with I was really into uh, the Charles, the, the Manson murders. And so I lived in Hollywood for a number of years, and I've done the tours, I've been to all the sites, and um, I've read all the books about that. I'm not a weirdo about it, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I've always had a bit of an interest in it. I've read the books, I've taken the tours, I've actually got pieces, little chunks of um, of the fireplace from, from the house on Cielo Drive from Scott Michaels, who owned uh, Dear Departed Tours. And Scott Michaels was actually a consultant on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you've got these perfect worlds of, of these old television actors in that old television world that I love, the Manson stuff, all wrapped up and made by Quentin Tarantino, who was like, <laughs> you know what, arguably the best director of our of our generation, right? And so yeah. it just it just culminated in all this stuff. It was like the perfect storm of things I love. So yeah. When you watched it, did were you a similar person like me? Because when that movie was being announced, it was being touted as a Manson movie. They were, you know, that was kind of the thing. It was like, oh, it's the Manson murders. And I didn't realize it until I've thought about it over the past couple of years. I mean, it's coming up on five years next year uh, that it's been out, which is can't believe that amount of time has moved past. Sure. But the fact that when we thought about it, we're like, oh man, it's gonna be a Manson movie. And then the movie starts to play. And what I think the genius of it now in hindsight is it's not a Manson movie, nope. but saying it is puts us in this back foot position the entire film for those who know what Manson is. Now, there's sure. a generation out there who have no fucking clue what we're talking about. Like, and, 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 you know, and I think that was another thing he wanted. He wanted to kind of bring her back to life, Sharon Tate, that is, and give her a better, a proper send off in his feeling of how she should be remembered as opposed to just being remembered as an unfortunate victim of a horrible, horrible murder. That really changed Hollywood and changed America as we went from the you know the sixties, which was the summer of love, and, yeah. and it's weird to see that all these boomers are now how they are. <laughs> Maybe Manson <laughs> changed them too, and now you know. But then everything would get like darker and grittier, and you know, and it would really inform Tarantino and and the likes of I would say the filmmakers of the nineties to get back to those gritty stories. But when you were sitting there in the theater waiting, and then all of a sudden we get to the you know the Celio Drive moment, and you're like, yeah. oh, fuck. like your asshole puckers, like you go, oh shit, like you yeah. you know, like you just sitting there for like two hours, and you've been like, okay, I really like what this is going on, but I'm like this motherfucker's gonna pull the rug out from on us in any minute now, and then and then the way he then switches it up on us, there's just something that was like great about knowing. You know, as a, as a person of our age, knowing the Mansons, but you go into that film thinking Tarantino and Manson, like, what the fuck is he going to do right. with this? Right? Like, you just have no right. idea. And then he totally flips it on you, which we should have seen coming because he's done it to us for three movies sure. like this. But sitting there in the theater, did you have that dread hanging over you the first time you, you saw the film of just like, oh, I know we're going to finish this movie with the Manson thing. Yeah. And just kind of being like, I don't know how he's going to handle it and being like, oh, this could get dicey. How was, how was your feeling that day in the, in the theater? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I don't know why I didn't see it coming. I so cards on the table, man. I actually didn't like this movie when I first saw it. I was pissed. I'll tell you why. I thought it was indulgent, which I, I don't anymore, but I was like, it's an indulgent. And and I, for whatever dumbass reason, I was really curious to see how Quentin was gonna handle the Manson murders. And I've seen Inglorious Bastards. I should have known. <laughs> so as it's happening, I'm like, that didn't happen. And I don't recall this. And why are they going to this guy's house? You know? So I completely got lulled into it, man, like an idiot. So so for, on that front, I, I walked 
lockdown. Like, what the hell is that? Of course, went and saw it again. Now I've seen it, no joke, probably 30 times. But that being said, I, you know, you're right. There is this feeling of dread throughout the whole movie. Starting for me, when it shows you that first date, which I think is like February 8th, 1969, something like that. So like, okay, we've got six months. This movie's going to be a six-month window leading up to that. And I heard him in an interview once. It was really interesting. Uh, I think it was for AFI, where I think P.T. Anderson was interviewing him. And he said what he wanted to do was he he knew the characters. Like, he knew Rick and Cliff. But he didn't want to give them anything to do. He wanted to be more of a day-in-the-life movie. So what he did was, by having it against the Manson murders, there's this engine kind of running alongside the story that the audience is aware of, not unlike Titanic. Right, Titanic's is yep, love story. Yep. We the audience know this is going to end with some bad yep. shit. This shit's gonna... and so so you're right. The whole the whole movie you're waiting and there's dread, but it, but it's a shocking amount of people saw this movie and had no clue who Manson was. Having saw the whole movie, still didn't know that it was about Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> just, they didn't even catch it. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, the whole thing threw me for a loop, and I had to go back and watch it a second time. And like a lot of his movies, every time you watch it, you're pulling more information out, you're noticing more things, you're taking more things away from it. But I, I have to admit, I'm a dumbass. I was waiting <laughs> to see how he was going to handle those murders, and and I should have known he was going to flip the script, man, and have Cliff Booth fucking clean house. <laughs> so I thought he was going to have Cliff and what's his name die, and then her die. I thought it was going to be like, like uh like a pit stop on the way up to yeah. the house. Yeah, interesting. Little did I know how much of a badass. Brandy was fucking gonna be. Yeah. Holy shit! What yeah. a yeah. That that <laughs> ending is so amazing, and it's the best, you know. Man. And then when make... people got upset about it, and I've said this many times, defending this, where they get upset that oh, it's very violent towards women. I always try to remind them: the women that are being killed on screen cut the real Sharon Tate's baby out of her yeah. and butchered her and her friends. So let's not shed some fucking tears, all right? Let's sure. one, they're uh, they're actresses, so they signed on, knew what's coming. Two, the people they're playing were real-life people who actually murdered people and killed the pregnant woman and took her baby out. So let's not get all upset if they get mauled and by a dog and set on fire by a flamethrower. Like, you know, like it's, you know, like, And if you don't like violent movies, fuck off. Don't watch it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and like what Tarantino says, you don't go to fucking Metallica and ask him to turn on the fucking music. Don't exactly. expect to go to a Tarantino film. Don't go to this new one. And not expect there's going to be some kind of yeah. violence in it. You want to see a woman survive a murder? Go right to Friday the 13th. It's always the final <laughs> girl. Enjoy exactly, that. Exactly. <laughs> Keep watching Halloween. Jamie Lee Curtis right. fucking made a career out of surviving that motherfucker. So. But I will, yeah. But I will say, um, I am upset now because there is that feeling, especially when, which we're going to talk about, obviously, the Wrecking Crew. Mm -hmm. But when you do see Charité now, it's like, oh, man, I really wish that's how it happened. Like, you, there yeah. is a feeling, mm -hmm. man. Wow. You know? Yeah. So although it was cool to watch, and now it's there's also a feeling of sadness like shit. That really could yeah. have been that could have been great. But. Yeah, it really could have. Now, before we jump into our movies, you know, it's been a while, so some of my listeners have not heard me ask a new guest their Ooh. first set of questions. And you've answered a few as we've kind of been talking, but I'll give them to you anyways. Sure Are you a Tarantino fan? And if not, why did you email a Tarantino podcast asking to be on the show? <laughs> I'm a huge Tarantino fan, man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's probably the only director, well, there's a few, but he's the only director, sight unseen, I go see the movie. As a matter of fact, I try not to even learn much about it. I One of the joys of a Tarantino movie um, is is when you get to see one for the first time, mm -hmm. knowing that you're about to want a roller coaster ride, but you can't even begin to predict. So just sit back and relax, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and and that's what makes me sad, too, after, you know, with only one left, apparently. It's like, wow, I'll never have that feeling again yeah. of, like, all right, I'm just going to buck on my seatbelt and see where this dude takes me. But, yeah, I'm a huge Tarantino fan. What was your gateway drug into the Tarantino universe? 
All right, I'm OG, man. So I grew up in the Bronx. I was 14 years old, and I was working in a mom-and-pop video store called Videotronics. And we would oftentimes get these promotional films sent to us. I guess the idea being if we like them or play them in the store, people want to rent them or we'll buy more copies and rent them out. And, and oftentimes they were shitty. Like the one that stands out to me was um, we got a, a copy of a movie called Collision Course, which was a buddy <laughs> cop movie with Jay Leno and Pat Morita. <laughs> yeah. If Jay Leno hadn't gotten The Tonight Show, he would have had, had a great career. <laughs> yeah. Pat Morita, but we got this one one day, Reservoir Dogs, and uh, and I popped it in because used to. I mean, I was fourteen. They leave me alone in the store. I was essentially managing it, which was a horrible choice. Playing a fourteen, <laughs> but I popped in the, in the VCR, and my mind was blown. I mean, you, you've seen Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. What's up with this this conversation in the diner? I was like, what the hell is this? And I remember taking that home, showing all my buddies, and and that was it. That was my intro. And then Pulp Fiction, of course, was what changed everything. Yes, that's what's like. Oh, that's the guy. That's him. Yeah, because I, I don't know. Like, I knew the name with Reservoir. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to explain, like, I knew who Quentin Tarantino was. But obviously with Pulp Fiction, we all knew who Tarantino was. Yeah. So although my intro was Reservoir Dogs, I think it was Pulp Fiction that really just turned the light off of me, man. Yeah. yeah. Now, what is your favorite Tarantino film? And I think I have an idea what it's going to be, but hey. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'd, I'd say Pulp Fiction's a close second. Reservoir Dogs is up there, too. And then um, Django yeah. is pretty high. It's Kill Bill 2 is high on the list. So it's hard to pick. But of course, you know, my, my favorite is definitely Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, in your opinion, what is his most underrated or underappreciated film? You know, that's I thought a lot about this. You know, um, I think there's two, but I'm going to go ahead and say, first of all, this one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've seen so many Tarantino fans who say the things that I kind of first felt when I saw it. It's indulgent. I don't get it. It's slow. It's boring. You know, this is, as he said a million times, the most personal film he's ever made. And I don't know that it connected with everybody. So I would say that this is an underappreciated movie for some. Um, I'd also maybe say Jackie Brown is in mm-hmm. that category. I feel like Jackie, you know, you mentioned Halloween earlier, so you're a Halloween guy. I feel like Jackie Brown is the Halloween three of the <laughs> Quentin Tarantino world. Because like Halloween people, like they either love Halloween three, it's the best standalone film in the franchise, yeah, I've heard, or they yeah. hate it because Michael Myers isn't in it. And I feel like Jackie Brown's got that kind of a quality as well. So I think the two most underappreciated are Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Jackie Brown, in my estimation. Yeah. And it's amazing to have those as your too possibly underappreciated when they're better than some people's best films. You know what I mean? Like oh, they have, they have ranked some people's best films. That's yeah. it's a, that's why being a Tarantino fan, you know, like, and I love Scorsese and all, but you can look at some of the Scorsese films and go, all right, the silence, yeah, so like, ah, okay, that was okay, maybe, all right, you know. But like, sure. when the Tarantino world, like, usually Death Proof gets the gets kicked. But sure, I think like Death Proof, The Hateful Eight, they had behind me, Once Upon a Time, and Jackie Brown would be the four. Of the nine, which it's crazy. There's five ahead of them. You know, it's like it's the bottom four, right. but they're still amazing films. As someone said, something's got to be at the bottom. You know what I mean? Just someone's got to be at the bottom. Death Proof. I forgot about that. That's yep. that's pretty high up on that list too. Yeah, because a lot of people didn't appreciate what he was trying to do there with the grindhouse stuff. And well, yeah, that's yeah, a super fun movie. I love yeah, that. I love it. And we're yeah. getting a, we're getting a movie out this weekend, which obviously when people listen, this will be early December. But this weekend we've got Thanksgiving. A trailer that's become to life 16 years later from Eli Roth. Maybe he will right his wrongs of his poor performance that a lot of people say about uh, the Bear Jew. So we'll, see if, he can, we'll see if he <laughs> can write that ship. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> Who is your all-time favorite character in the Tarantino-verse? You know, interesting. So I think right off the bat, Rick Dalton. Rick and Cliff, I love the friendship. I, and I, again, Rick Dalton to me represents all those old TV actors I used to love, you know, and I apologize for the bark. No, no worries. Um, so Rick Dalton and Cliff are high. I got to say, you know, Vincent Vega, right? Mm. Vincent's high on there. One of my all-time favorites. I don't even want me to pick one, but I'm, I'm all over the map here. Probably fine. I love Bud in, in Kill Bill 2. 
I mean, he's in both of them, but yes. his, his role in Kill Bill 2 is one of my favorites. I always love Michael Madsen, yes. but yeah, I love Bud. I also love his boss. <laughs> it's yeah. calendar time. It's, it's calendar time. He's, he's one of my favorite side characters they've ever put into a Tarantino film. And that's why I love Bud so much, because on the one hand, he'll sit there and put up with that shit. Yeah. And then, and then he goes and he's outside his trailer and knows she's there. Like He he could have killed that guy in an instant if he yes. wanted to. That's yes. the character. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a great look at a man who was once riding high in life mm -hmm. and then and probably the decision to kill her changed the trajectory of his life and that whole group sure. and he's been dealing with it since yep and lastly whose career would you like to see tarantino give a boost to in his tv show turned final film <laughs> a year ago i i announced that he was putting out a tv show as he did and then it's a film so i still hold firm that this tv show has been turned into a film but who would you like to see in it and be given a boost to it like he's done to so many in their careers, even though sometimes a lot of these actors, whether it's they get to the wrong director or they start taking the paycheck because now they're getting that money mm -hmm. because they were in this film, then they, you know, their careers usually just kind of fizzle out because they never really use the momentum and go do other projects that would be considered, you know, like worthy of, of their talent. Sure, sure, sure. You know, I don't know. I don't know if these people would be considered getting a boost. I've heard, I mean, I've had some names. You know, early on when they were first talking about this movie, the name that I heard a lot of people mention, and I have to agree, would be interesting is Jesse Plemons. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I'd like to see Jesse Plemons in the Tarantino universe. I think it could be interesting. I, I was once asked, I think it was on my podcast, or maybe it was in conversation. I don't know. But I was asked one time uh, about recasting stuff. And like, I love Bruce Dern and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I love him playing George Spawn. Of course, Burt Reynolds was originally supposed to play that. Um, and we were, got to, we were talking about recasting that. And although I'm fine with Bruce Stern, were some interesting names. And one of them was um, just because of the pop culture, pop culture-iness of it, William Shatner would have been an interesting choice. Just yes. William Shatner playing George Spawn in a Tarantino movie, right? Um, so I'd like I wonder what Shatner might do in a Tarantino movie. Robert Duvall is someone that I, I think, you know. Yeah. But here's probably my ultimate choice. Tommy Lee Jones. I, I, I'd like mm. to see Tommy Lee Jones in a Tarantino movie. You know, There's a lot of possibilities with, you know, I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks or months, we'll start to get, now that the SAG strike is over, there'll start to be some official announcements of who's actually going to be hired, and we'll find out. Well, we should know soon. Have, they've announced the league, right? For... They've rumored it. Okay. They've rumored it, and they haven't, so like, there's been nothing official. And because I guess the the gentleman Walker, I think his last name, I, I, right now. Yeah, I'm the guy from blanking. my time. Yeah, yeah guy yeah. from my Tanya. Yeah. Uh, he was in Blackbird. He won a Golden Globe for his performance in that uh, Apple Plus uh, series. He was rumored, and I guess they were talking about it right before the strike. So once the strike happens, they you know there's nothing, no negotiation, nothing. So they can't even announce anything. So I, I'm assuming. If not before the holidays, right after the holidays, we're going to start to hear it. And I think it'll probably start ramping it up. And I don't think we're going to see it for another two years. I think yeah. he's either got two choices. We're either going to see it summer of 2025 or we'll see it Christmas 2025. I think those are our two options that he's going to put it out. But who knows? We shall see. Yeah. And I remember when they originally were announcing it, they were, there were a lot of people thought it was going to be about Pauline Kale, which I thought yes. was interesting. You know, <laughs> yes. that's. That had me spinning. I was like, ooh, a Pauline yeah. Kale movie. <laughs> really cool well, too. I'll tell you, there's a lot of people like, that's fucking stupid. I don't want to see a movie by some old bitch. Well, all the people did, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But then the guys like me are like, all right, Pauline Kale. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, those are the names. And I had one more just because, like, a lot of the old 70s action guys are gone. Like, Bronson's gone. And, and, mm -hmm. and he's, he's not gone. But he's boring. He's almost dead. But I thought Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chuck. <laughs> we might talk about him in a little bit too. Yeah, it might come up. It might come up. A little Chucky N. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I thought like it would be because I've got I've gone down like a Chuck or um, a, uh, a, a Charles Bronson you know rabbit hole in the yeah. last couple of months and uh, and Chuck Norris is in that world as well and I thought that might be interesting too. So was, I know I know I'm never giving you just the one answer. But no. Those are 
Hey, I owe you for not for, for taking a year to respond to you like a dick. So I'm just glad you're on the other side. <laughs> so we are going to jump into talking about this. Now, this is the one film that was very hard for me to find actual credible influences for. So I had two thoughts in my head when figuring out how to do this episode because I did True Romance. And what I like to do about True Romance is... Is I wanted to talk about the films that were used in them because obviously John Woo, uh, especially early in Tarantino's career, was a big influence. So I thought it would be great to talk about A Better Tomorrow 2, which is a dog shit movie but has a really great ending. And also because Sonny Chiba is discussed in that film, we see uh, the Street Fighter on the screen. And then Sonny Chiba, it's like in that, those first couple of years in Reservoir Dogs, we talk about Pam Greer. She shows up five years later in Jackie Brown. In True Romance, he talks about Sonny Chiba. That's in 93. A decade later, he's the fucking amazing Atori Hanzo in Kill Bill Volume 1. And then also in Pulp Fiction, we don't say his name, but we talk about David Carradine as Kane from Kung Fu. And that's what Jules is going to do. He's going to walk through it like Kane from Kung Fu. And sure enough, nine years after that movie, or ten years, because he doesn't come in until technically we don't see his face till 2004, he's in Kill Bill Volume 2, which... It's amazing to think that Tarantino whispers these names of people mm -hmm. as a part of the world of his films, and then these motherfuckers are actually on our screen. Sure. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about them in for True Romance, because it's technically not a, I mean, it's not a Tarantino film, and we do the same one we did from, from Dust Till Dawn, but that being said, for this one, there's some allusions to things, but this is really outside of the bandit, which we're going to talk about first, and that is really more about, the, and what, as we're going to discuss, that's about the relationship between the, the actor and stunt person that we're going to talk about. There's not a lot of inspirations pulled outside of, you know, some some little details here and there. But it's just really one of those first movies that Tarantino's made that really doesn't, isn't really influence heavy. And I, I was trying to think, do I do The Bandit or do I do the two movies in the film, which is obviously The Wrecking Crew and then also uh, The Great Escape. And I thought, you know what, we're going to talk about The Wrecking Crew so we can discuss how filmmaking has changed, but also so we can talk about what he was trying to do with the late, great Sharon, Sharon Tate. I don't know why I just yeah. suddenly blanked on the main character of the film, because <laughs> it really does encapsulate the three main characters, because The Bandit is about Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, and that really plays a, a heavy role in our characters of Rick and Cliff, and then obviously the actual movie that she goes to see is this film. It's not her last film, but it's her last film that was released while she was still alive. Sure. It was, it was also her biggest, I would imagine. You know? Yes. What a yeah. film. I will, I will get to you. We'll, get to, we'll talk about we'll it. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Holy smokes. All right. Anyways, things have changed. So I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Let the investigation begin. It's time to call our first witness. Our first witness is the 2016 documentary, The Bandit, directed by Jesse Moss, starring Hal Needham, Burt Reynolds, David Needham, Robert Levy, Paul Williams, Mike Henry, and Sonny Schroyer. It holds a 7.5 IMDb rating with an 86 critic and 86 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Burt Reynolds and other crew members from the 1977 classic Smokey and the Bandit share their experiences with the late director and stuntman Hal Needham. Now taking the witness stand, The Bandit. So our first one that we will be discussing is the 2016 documentary, 
The Bandit. Yes. Now, for those of you who don't know, The Bandit is, it's a behind-the-scenes look at two gentlemen. And I guess it's really about Hal Needham, but it's also really about Burt Reynolds. So it's like a weird, it's a great documentary. I, I really enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. I actually gave it like four stars on, on Letterboxd because I, th- I thought it was one of those, you know, look, especially if you're a fan of yeah. uh, Smoking the Bandit movie, you like Burt Reynolds, or if you're a fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is one of those movies where when you start to watch, you go, if they did not characteristically design Cliff Booth to look and be Hal Needham in a way, I don't know who the fuck they did. You know, because like, no, 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 I mean, I'm looking at him right behind you now in your poster, and I'm like, that's fucking Hal Needham, except yeah, he's definitely. buttoned his shirt up. Like, there's the difference is <laughs> yeah. Cliff doesn't have his shirt wide open, but it's buttoned up. And you look at Hal and you go, he was a tough dude. He was in the 82nd Airborne. Like, there's a lot of yeah. characteristics that we drew from to create him and then obviously cliff is and what i liked about this is he's i mean it's really more about the relationship of bert and and hal as they really were really good friends hal lived them for a long time it was his roommate right. and it was almost like tarantino said well what if he was bert reynolds but not as good looking right. and also not as yeah. lucky what if bert and hal didn't have the success that they did what if there's an alternate timeline and also that they happened to be in an era that didn't work out for them like because the stunt felt felt like it got much bigger in the 70s when especially when sure. Hal started his own company well, and Burt Reynolds got much bigger in the 70s yeah, yeah. so it so, felt yeah. like like in the 60s like so these guys are coming you know bigger stars in the 50s into the 60s so they're at the end of their career and right. it's too late and then unfortunately they're like born in the wrong era because if they were born the same time that Bert is, they may be the stars that Bert and Hal were because they would have been in that time frame. You know what I mean? Like his stunts would have been cooler, it would have been better because he was right. such a stunt guy. So sure, sure, sure. what did you think of The Bandit? Well, first of all, I love the documentary. I'm with you. That's a great documentary. It's um, So I'll, I'll, there's a lot to say here, man. I'll tell you this. I'm not a Bert Reynolds guy. I was, I was kind of an asshole. Um, that said, this documentary is like um, there's a vulnerability to, yeah. to Reynolds in this. There was a genuine love between him and Hal Needham. I mean, mm-hmm. he was very kind to Hal. I mean, so that friendship is very genuine. So uh, to me, the documentary really makes Burt Reynolds a lot more likable, you know, because yes. I, I just always thought he was kind of a prick. When I was kind of, when I was a kid in the 80s, he was, you know, the, the chewing gum and the, I don't know, I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't dig his vibe at all. Yeah. So there's a lot of, the documentary is great and, and it's, it puts Burt in a great light. There's a lot of influence here, especially when you pull back, not just on the movie, but if you pull back and look at the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, and then even quite Quentin's, you know, podcast episodes on, on video archives where he eulogized Rick Dalton, who died earlier this year. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know how nerdy you want to get about oh, yeah. this. Yeah. But, but you're definitely right. It, it's small things. Um, but I think the biggest influence is the relationship. Yes. This is the closest, I think, we're going to get to a love story from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, it's I mean, a bromance, for sure. They're a real bromance. Yeah. I mean, these guys mm-hmm. love each other. It's an intimate relationship. There's even that line of, you know, what do you do with someone who's like more than a friend, but a little less than a wife? You know, yes. go drunk. And there's even a line, and I wrote it down, um, that Bert says in, in The Bandit, if he'd have been a woman, we would have had a good marriage. Like, yes, you know, so, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's the biggest takeaway is that relationship. And then, of course, the look. You're dead on. I mean, Hal, he did looked at Hal Needham and said, I got to make a cool version of that. You know, and, yeah. uh, and that's what he did. And Hal Needham, arguably better looking than Burt Reynolds. And, and obviously, Cliff Booth, how about looking at Rick Dalton? Oh, he's so. getting hit on by that one lady. I'm pretty sure. I apologize to any female listeners. I, I'm not trying to be a pig, but if you watch the, this is in the '70s, and it was bizarre. Like watching some of this footage that they put in, it's so different how people like even reacted in the '70s, right? Like, I mean, even Barbara Walters looked like she was 
Literally throwing herself at Burt Reynolds on his couch. She was four seconds away from jacking him off. <laughs> exactly. And I don't forget who the other lady was, but she was interviewing Hal Needham. And she's like complimenting him and you're easy on the ass. Like, if they didn't bang both of those ladies at the end of these interviews, I'd be oh, stunned. Yeah. They were throwing themselves oh. at them. And I was just like, whoa. Because like, if you see Brad Pickett interviewed or Leo or George, like, I'm sure there's some attraction. But like, the we, I'm not saying they weren't professional, but there's definitely a little bit more professional decor. Yeah, it's a decor there. there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I was like, Hal Needham's getting laid. Like, I was just like in my head, I was like, Hal Needham got laid that day. You're right. I mean, Barbara Walters, when Burt Reynolds is talking about Indians and tile and glass, all that yes. crazy shit he's talking about, which is, which is kind of nutty, but how much he loves tile and Indians. Barbara Walters looks like she's never heard anything more compelling in her life. She's yes. on her knees, like leaning into him, and it's like, oh my God. Yes, she's literally laying across the couch, like his picture of him naked on the bare yeah. I mean, she is, if she could be the couch, she's the couch. Like You're dead on, man. It's bizarre. It was just so bizarre, especially now in 2020 eyes to look back at these things 50 years later, you're like, wow things really were so much different like right. and you see the star power though right like so you see sure. the star magnetism that a burt reynolds and even the hal needham had and it's funny what i do love it too is and i always thought it in the movie and now i get it but when i watched the movie and i always thought yeah i mean i guess brad and leo could look a little bit alike and then when i saw hal and burt and i'm like the entire time hal does not have a mustache and Bert yeah. has nothing but a mustache. Sure. They don't look alike at all. But I was just like, they just had a similar body type or they just maybe filmed good together. But I understood now why those two characters really didn't look too much alike. And I was like, man, why does everyone think they look right, alike? Right, and then right. the same thing with Bert. I was like, they don't look nothing alike. If there's anything that really influenced the bandit for sure. Like I'm sure as he was writing it and he watched this, he probably went back and said, okay, here's the, the things I'm going to throw in to kind of marry maybe the missing ingredients to really push that bromance forward he got from this little film. Because this comes out three years before he releases, or even and two years before he even starts shooting the film. So you can definitely see the nuggets that even this documentary of the real life of these two gentlemen kind of definitely helped to inspire and influence some of the things we would get from this film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the most compelling thing in, in the documentary to me, too, is, again, the relationship, but imagining what these guys did day in and day out. Like, what what's it like waking up in that house, right? And and so, and I think, you know, when Quentin Tarantino made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, again, what he said was, he said, I knew who these guys were. I just wanted dating the life stuff. I didn't want it to be too, I didn't want it to become like an Elmore Leonard novel and give them too much shit to do. Um, same thing in the documentary. It's, it's really just, what's interesting is watching them interact yeah. and talk and just, but you're right, man. It, they are a luckier, harder working version because there's also yeah. some stark differences we can talk about. But I mean, Rick is one of those guys who didn't quite get out. He didn't quite graduate out of the TV world in the way that Burt Reynolds did, man. Burt Reynolds went from Riverboat and TV guesting to movie stardom. Same thing as McQueen, Eastwood too, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you look at Rick, and, and, and it, you know, and, and we don't know what happened after 69, although if you read the novelization, you, you know, you, you do. And But um, but you're right. It's like, man, in another timeline, these could have been the guys, you know. But they're also very similar because, so Rick is chosen for like his acting chops, but he's not the star look that the other people are, right? Like, so he's not as good looking mm -hmm. as some of the other main actors. So that's why he doesn't get the roles. But as he shows in that Lancer pilot, Rick can act. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is what we get the reverse is Burt Reynolds was always being compared to, because of his looks, to Marlon Brando, Brando which he tells yeah. a great Brando story about how much of a dick Brando was, <laughs> how insecure these <laughs> yeah. people are, how Wouldn't insecure they truly hand. are. Yeah. And then Burt, and I just got done watching recently the Sly, the Sylvester Stallone documentary on Netflix. And unfortunately, these these guys get typecast because of their looks and their little thing they do so Bert was always just the comedian he was never really allowed and he tried he tried to step out of the the good old boy 
You know, the good old boy guy yeah. from the South that they threw him into all these films. And again, he made a ton of money. But it's interesting that he and Sylvester Stallone get stereotyped into these roles. And then almost within a couple of years of each other, they have like two of these great breakout roles where he's in Paul Thomas Anderson's. He's in uh, Boogie Nights. And then Copland for Stallone. Copland. And yeah. it's amazing because then you get to see them acting. But because they had a look, they weren't allowed to stretch their acting chops. They had to be the people that were bankable where Rick wasn't bankable but could act. And I thought sure. it was a really cool flip on that dichotomy where we had Bert is where he's a handsome man. Like I'm like women are throwing themselves at him. Honestly, it's it was unbelievable. It's like a rock star, like yeah. watching this this that documentary. And you know, they're interviewing people on the sets, you know, on, on these uh, sets that they're at. And someone said, Does Bert hit on you? And he doesn't. And they're like, No, but we're trying to hit on him, kind of thing. It's like holy <laughs> shit. I know. It's like holy Christ. Uh, it's, it's, no wonder he's got mirrors on his ceiling. It's he's well, like, it, he well, can't you know, believe it. And one thing they talk about in the documentary too is that it, when he did finally start to break that, he shot himself in the foot because he did deliverance, yep. which was this departure. But then he did, yeah. he had done that nude layout and, and it just, it kind of took his knees out from under him, it, you know, yeah. pissed him up and people didn't take him seriously. He, he, he feels, he said, he feels like he didn't get an Oscar nomination because of that. But you know what's interesting too? He also alluded to getting offered an Oscar worthy role that he turned down to do the bandit because he promised how he would do it, which that's, I think that's also something Rick would do. I could see Rick yes. keeping a promise mm -hmm. to Cliff, even if it was at his own, it would, it would hurt his career, you know? Give it up to hell, Needham. He reminds me a little of a Tarantino where he just said, I'm fucking doing this. You know, like he was like, I'm, we're going to make this movie. And then, you know, even Bert was like, they opened it up in, you know, New York city. He's like, well, course they're not going to get this wasn't made for new yorkers this is made for the south yeah and it made like what a half like a quarter of a billion dollars like it's insane how much money that thing made nuts i know i was insane. i know i was watching like oh, i probably made like you know, maybe 100 million times like, like no 250 i'm like holy shit that's crazy yeah it's just a, such an amazing documentary and if you're a fan like you don't have to be a fan of once upon a time but if you are and you watch this documentary not only do you get a great insight into the real life of an actor and a stuntman and how they really, you know, they were best friends. And as you alluded to, he told the story Bert does about how Hal said, Hey, um, I got some friends coming over for the weekend. Can you know? And he's just like, I went, I went away for three days. It's like, that's yeah. the, that's the house guest telling the star. That, yeah. I don't, I don't think Rick would have hey, done that. <laughs> I'm going to have sex with, I'm going to have a weekend of sex. Can you just maybe, <laughs> yeah. cause he knew if Bert's there, he also knew if Bert's there, it's going to totally cock block him. Like he, it was, they said it without saying, it was kind of like, Hey Bert, do you yeah. mind like not being you and being around? So I can. Hal even gets a whole lot less interesting when Bert Reynolds is in the room. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yes. Yes, he does. Now there's two things specifically that I thought, okay, Tarantino, definitely jumped on this one is early on in the bandit when they're showing Hal in the, in the middle of stunts, uh, it, yep. it'll stop and it'll freeze frame and say, yep. Hal, you know, that reminds me of the scene from operation, uh, operation yep. dynamite <laughs> where Cliff Booth is jumping. So I love that touch. But also, um, when Hal Needham tells the story of, of, of uh, I guess, you know, Bert was at the bottom of a mountain or, or in a canyon, and he couldn't get out. So Hal Needham's like, look, if you can hold on to my back, I can climb you out of here, buddy. And then they climbed up so a helicopter, uh, helicopter could take him. All I kept thinking was, you're a good friend, Hal, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. saying, I try. You know what I mean? And I, in a different way, it's kind of what Cliff does at the end of the film is he, he gets shot. Like, I think everyone forgets because it's such a chaotic moment. And maybe it's one of those moments that, and I don't want to blame the editor, you know, the new editor. Uh, but if Sally Menke was there, maybe we would have held on a little longer. But everyone forgets the girl who just won't stop screaming, who we're all yeah. really happy that she gets set on fire. Yes. And I give that actress credit because that could not have been an easy 
do that every take. Like that is that's a lot. Like that yeah. is exhausting. It was exhausting for us to listen to and watch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But she fires the gun and mm-hmm. Cliff falls down. Now we later learn that he passes out from loss of blood and the adrenaline's come down sure. after he got stabbed. But the the point of that moment was supposed to give us the feeling that she shot Cliff. Right. We're supposed to not know if Cliff's alive or not. But I think it's lost. It maybe it's because she over screams. There's another beat that needs to be had. Yeah, I think I think we need a few more beats for sure. Yeah, I yep. know exactly what you're yep. talking about. It is confusing, especially for a first-time yeah. viewer. It's like, wait, is he dead? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You miss it. I think some people miss it. That, yeah. that you know, it, the shot he falls, and then we're so caught up in the yeah. barbecue, and the next thing we know is we're loading him into the car, yep. you know? Yep. Because when he goes running in and says, Francesca, Francesca, next thing we know is we kind of cut to him talking to the police, and we never really get another shot of cliff you know so there's there's a missed moment at the end of the movie where we miss the fact that we're supposed to think that maybe cliff was was shot and killed by this girl you know and he literally put his life on the line for his buddy and the guy's sleeping wife in the next door he's out there fucking singing he's out there drinking and singing good old couldn't have just one whiskey sour (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah and it ends it ends with cliff saying the thing we heard him first say which i try you know at the beginning he says it to uh marvin shores and then he says it it's in the ambulance man i try you know and and yeah and there's there's so we know that obviously you know tarantino was definitely interested in that character in that relationship Mm -hmm. Um, but I will say this, I got a hot take on this, man. Fire away. Prepping for this, something occurred to me. I think Cliff Booth would have fucking hated Hal Needham. <laughs> he would have absolutely hated him. And I'll tell you why. Hal Needham really wanted to be famous, I think. You know, he mm-hmm. first of all, he was yeah. a really innovator. Like he one thing I think is interesting, we we don't really get to see Cliff actually work. Not in a, we in, don't. a in a Hollywood mm-hmm. capacity. I mean, we see him, you know, fix a we see him fuck up a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fuck up a chance to work. <laughs> and we see him fix a fucking TV antenna, right? Then within taking a shirt off. When I saw that, I was like, you motherfucker. Oh, like, God damn it. Feel, how many sighs did you hear in the movie theater every time? <sighs> well, yeah, so so the women, the women rightfully gasped yeah. as 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 we all did as men when we saw Selma Hayek walk out with that snake oh, in from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. So that was their Selma Hayek moment, and I get it. But also, I'm sure as those women felt when Selma walked out, us men felt like, you're in your fucking late 50s and you still look like that? Yeah, I know. Like, I feel where like do you have the time? <laughs> I'm like, you win already. Why are you still doing this? Why Why are you doing this to us, Bruce? Or uh, Bruce? Why are you doing this to us, fucking Cliff? It's unreal. But um, but we don't really see him working out. Now, Hal Needham, you know, and I've also read Hal's book. You know, Hal was like a real innovator. So he was like yeast on man. He invented a lot of things that called like the Needham ratchet, which is way to fall backwards off your horse. Uh, the air ramp was his. He also developed airbags by watching pole vaulters. So they could go from like doing 40 foot jumps, to like 90 foot jumps, not landing on cardboard boxes, but landing in these airbags. And he was driven to be a star. You see it in the documentary, the toy, the you know, all that stuff. Whereas Cliff Booth, man, Cliff Booth was at war with nobody, right? Cliff Booth is just fine being Cliff Booth. And I gotta wonder if Hal Needham and his thing. And his open shirt, and I wonder if Cliff Booth were like, you know, I'm gonna kick this guy's ass too. <laughs> I just feel like you know, I don't. Well, the other thing is, is is Hal left the army? Like I, mm-hmm. th- that's a, so I was in the military. So, so when Hal was like, when Hal was like, I was in for two years and I left. I'm like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. what military were you? In? You just said, hey, guess what, guys, I'm going west. Right. Good luck to you. I, that was a little. I was like, wait a minute, did you finish your service, or are you telling us that you were a wall right. this entire time and decided to hook up with the most recognizable face in Hollywood and no one knew? You know what I mean? It was kind of yeah. like, huh. But Cliff, his character, is basically Artie Murphy. 
yeah. of the fucking Pacific, and sure. and anyone who's read the book knows the, the level book. of violence he has. Yeah. So yeah, he would have he would have killed him. He had more confirmed Japanese kills than anyone else in the war. I think yeah. according to the novel, he would have yeah. murdered him. Yeah, yeah. yeah he absolutely yeah. would wipe the floor with him. Yeah, sure. Also though, Hal is also tough though because in the documentary, the guy breaks his back twice doing these jumps. He's also the first human being to test the airbag. And let me say this real careful for you: he's not a test dummy. They didn't test dummies first. Hal Needham was a dummy and said, yes, for money, I will test the first airbag. And they show shots of him ramming a car at full speed into a wall and him taking a face plant into an airbag to prove that it works. But it was like, it's like back in the 70s. I'm like, holy fuck. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Like, this dude. So there was a level of nuts to him, too. I think maybe Cliff could have maybe seen a little bit of himself that because he was maybe he wouldn't like because maybe he was a better stuntman than cliff i'm starting to think that he maybe was the better stuntman than cliff well how many was just a real professional i i get the feeling that cliff booth was like kind of a, almost like a a drifter right war hero yeah. as we know murdered some yeah. folks which the novel goes into more by the way he did kill his <laughs> wife spoiler alert <laughs> yeah. um i mean you know sometimes your, your finger that. slips sure. your finger slips sometimes yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not i'm not I, gonna... i'm glad they didn't show that scene but if anyone's read the book it is a hilarious scene it's one of those i shot marvin in the face moments yeah, in a book form yeah because i don't want to give away but what happens is is beyond what you think is going to happen because if you watch the movie you think hits her with a spear gun she goes into the ocean we don't find her anymore, and he claims that she has fallen overboard or something rough seas. Right. And everyone thinks, oh, mm-hmm, she drowned. But it's far worse, oh, yeah. but also far hilarious than that. Yeah. You don't see it's like it's a moment I never thought in a book. I'd be like, I did not see that coming. Yeah, I'm not gonna give it away, but reading the novel, I almost couldn't I almost couldn't picture it. I was like, wait a second, what? <laughs> like, that was <laughs> fucking horrifying. <laughs> you know, and, and you're right, kind of funny. But th- there's some things I've noticed too, like um Quentin clearly dove into the life of Hal Needham. There's like little things I picked mm. up, like you know, um the director Andy McLaughlin, um Hal Needham writes about him on his book. That's the guy who really gave Hal his start in stunt work. He was a TV director, then graduated into film directing. And he's the guy that that Rick and Cliff, when they're having their good old-fashioned drunk talking about best action director ever that kind of guy that thing um there's a big part of the book too that talks about how having these falling horses a horse that's trained to fall could be a real big money maker for you and that's kind of what it, when they talk about the dog fighting stuff mm-hmm. and and that was a big thing for Hal Needham he had two of the best falling horses in Hollywood and they talk about that in his book a lot too so there's clearly things when you look about at Hal's book Quentin's book the movies the documentary there's a lot going on there I mean Quentin was really picking a lot of this stuff up for sure oh. I think the biggest difference is, is the level of success for both men. Because I really think mm. Cliff Booth, I mean, great, he was a badass. I don't think he was like a great stuntman, per se. He's a yeah, badass. Exactly. But you know who I think he really should have been? You mentioned him earlier. I see Cliff Booth being Kane from Kung Fu, man. Right? Yes, yes. He's the, yes. He's the most calming presence in the movie. He's yes. also a fucking badass murderer. <laughs> yes. Maybe that's why he is so chill and went with Rick because Rick's lifestyle isn't, it's not angsty, right? Like, because when you read the book, you realize by the time he gets with Rick, he's been through some shit even after the war. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is like, he's like, just calm. You know what I mean? He's kind of yeah. like, you know what? And because he does kind of take on that hippie persona, which I think is interesting because Rick, obviously, in the movie, fucking hates the hippies. <laughs> oh, fucking hippies. Oh, fucking hippies aren't okay. <laughs> I use that clip of my show. And then, but Cliff is kind of like when that girl's on, he's like, peace, man. Like, he's more of a peace, fun loving because he's like, man, I don't know. I've been on that side of the, of the crazy mm-hmm. farm and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm done. I'm just trying to stay out I like of prison. I'm and... sitting in the Hollywood Hills when you're gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I think he's in that phase of his life for sure. It's just funny to me. Like, I don't know how many actors could have done it because there's rumors of other actors that Quentin had thought about. 
But like seriously, to be the most dangerous guy in the movie and the most calming presence in the movie is really tough to play. Yes. I think Brad Pitt does it really well. Yeah. And it does go back to what you said. Like you said, maybe Hal Needham was better looking than Bert. You know, again, this is obviously going to be preference, but maybe Brad is also better looking than Leo. You oh, know what I mean? Sure. There's that little like, hmm, you know? Brad's better looking than Margot Robbie. <laughs> As Clarence Worley said, I'm not gay, but if I had to fuck a man, I'd fuck Brad Pitt. <laughs> if there was a gun to my head. <laughs> but shit, I mean, it's hard not to believe it. No, yeah. I mean, see, the guy, when he shows up and he takes that shirt, I feel like, oh, God. I know. I was like, yeah, damn, I like shit about myself. I did notice something. This has nothing to do with the movie, but I'm sitting there watching the film or the, the documentary. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because this gentleman is, I mean, he's having, you know, his career is like taking off now. But I'll be damned if you're going to make a Burt Reynolds biopic movie. Pedro Pascal mm-hmm. is the man. Somebody right now, Google Pedro Pascal now and the 70s Burt Reynolds, and you tell me that those two gentlemen, maybe Pedro's is a legitimate son. There was a couple shots of Burt, and I'm like, my God, that's Pedro Pascal. Yeah, I mean, I was call. like, holy shit, the two of them are like almost like identical, like in their in their looks, the dark eyes, the hair, the must, like, my God. Right. Pedro right, right. Pascal could play Burt Reynolds any day of the week. That's so, interesting. That's, that's a, a good call. Yeah, a little hot take from the Church of Tarantino. I love it. I love it. And you know, one thing I never would have thought about until it was brought up in this documentary is I never saw young Burt Reynolds as looking like um Marlon Brando. Brando, but holy shit. Well, probably because of his mustache, you know, right. and then but you see him in that pompadour from the yeah. 60s, you're like, Jesus. Right. Now you know why Brando said cocksucker to him. Yeah, that was eye-opening. What a dick. Wow. Yeah. And even when they show that clip of like, I guess it was a Twilight Zone episode, he was even acting like Brando. It was like Brando was free yeah. parting desire. I was like, holy yeah. shit. So yeah, I, I have a new appreciation. I will say this. I have a whole new appreciation for Burt Reynolds because of that documentary. For sure. Me too. I misjudged the man based yeah. on things that I, you know, again, I'm going to be 48 at the end of this year, actually a couple days after the seven comes out. Uh, so I grew up with him being, you know, in the, the movies that we know, but he was kind of like a swarmy kind of, you know, hey, kind of a good yeah. old boy, you know, you're just kind of like, yeah, okay. He's, you know, I know people like that, but I was wrong, you know, because yeah. I mean, then when you see him, obviously later when we see him in Boogie Nights, you're like, wow, this dude can fucking act, you yeah. know, much like Stallone. You forget how good he is in Rocky and you see him in fucking Copley and you're like, Wow, where yeah. why has he not been doing this his whole career? This is fantastic. And ironically, same year, '97, both those movies came out. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, and you know, and now and then he got a more what what wasn't what we didn't have, which was we would have had Burt Reynolds as George Spawn in Once Upon a Time. Yes, he passed away. I know, man. I know that would have been cool. I know that would be cool. Although I love Bruce Stern, man. Got a mad respect. For him. Yes, yes. You know, Bruce Dern is like uh, he's like the Sammy Hagar of replacements. You're like, wow. Yeah, it's not it's David Lee, good. but damn, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty fucking yeah. good. So, and now it's time to present the evidence. Well, that'll bring us to this film's influences, and we've kind of spoke a few of them. But my first one, number one, and this is obvious as we've been talking about it. But the relationship between Burt Reynolds and Al Needham, absolutely 100, was the inspiration for the relationship between Rick Dalton. And Mr. Cliff Booth. Watch the document. Watch the movie. Watch the documentary. Watch the movie. Gonna go. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. Absolutely. It's almost like this is B grade movie. But once upon a time in Hollywood is. Hey, what if these guys were actually B actors? They just never made it to the A list, and this is what you would get. Number two. My second one is Tarantino even based some of his mannerisms and personality off of Rick and Cliff for Burton Hal, especially with the dress, the way his hair's kept for Cliff, the sunglasses. Now, obviously. The open shirt was a 70s thing, so he went more with what would he look like if he was in the Good 60s. Call. Good call. And, yeah. he, and he, he kills it. And yet, the difference also, though, too, is like Cliff, though, is a little, it's like, what if Bert was insecure? 
And that what I thought was 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 pretty cool. It's like, what if Bert was insecure? And that's what we get with Rick Dalton, right? Because Bert is not insecure at all. Not at all. Bert is a if he's insecure, he's great at hiding it. He's a very confident, but not too cocky of a man. Like when you they ask those women, hey, has Bert hit on you? Because everyone's assuming he has, because women just throwing this at us. And like, no, he hasn't, but we're going to try to hit on him. You realize the minute you go, okay, he's a star? He may not be the piece of shit we think is. Because when Diane, when what's her name's throwing herself across the couch at him, like literally, if there wasn't a camera that she wouldn't have had clothes on, and he's just sitting there calmly yeah. talking about our deco. You're just kind of like, <laughs> this dude, he's, you're like, he's yeah. smooth as shit. Like, is. she is literally saying, as soon as the cameras are done rolling, we're going to roll around in your yeah. bed. And he's like, yeah, I really like mirrors. <laughs> he's just so and cool. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tile? Someone tile. I was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> Someone says, what are, if you were to be asked, it'll, it's like a party game. Name Burt Reynolds' three favorite things. Glass ceilings. <laughs> Tile in his bathroom and Indians, and Indians <laughs> not Native Americans, because this is before we call them that. Right. Indians. I was like, those are three drastically so not alike things at all. <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was satire or not. I couldn't tell if he was trying to be funny or sincere. <laughs> but it was, it was. He had some serious shag rug though. In one, in that one interview. Oh, That's some serious shag rug. A lot the of kind it. of shag rug with our ticks in. That was that much hair in that and, kind and of. Rug. He definitely does. Um, Rick Dev definitely has a little bit of that good old boy stuff in there. He's from, of course, yep. Missouri, whereas Reynolds is from yep. Florida. But there's some of that good mm-hmm. old boy stuff. And then one thing too is I, I wish we'd seen it, but in the novel it kind of alludes to the fact that he went on after the the hippies were killed. Rick Dalton went on Johnny Carson and kind of crushed in the talk show mm-hmm. circuit. And they in the documentary talks about how Burt Reynolds was like the get. Like you want yeah. him on your talk show because he was going to crush it. So I like to think that maybe Rick would have blossomed a little bit more, but he did not have the confidence of Burt Reynolds for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, because he stuttered. <laughs> another another nice little nod. Yeah. Number three. Our third one, we talked about this. You actually brought this up. And this is when I knew I picked the right movie. And I knew that Tarantino had seen this before they went into the editing bay for once upon a time. And that is early on in the documentary, they would do a bunch of freeze frames on stunts that Hal has done. And when they freeze it, they insert Hal's name. So they'll show the movie, they'll show Burt Reynolds in the scene, and then they'll show the stunt, and they'll freeze it, and they put Hal's name in, just like they do in Operation Dynamite, (laughs) as uh, they're over there in Italy, and fucking good old Cliff gets to jump a small channel. It's it's funny, it's a smaller jump, but you see Hal jump. He's like breaking his back, jumping a canyon. It's ridiculous. And you know, the funny thing is, is, uh, as I was watching this documentary, I thought, Evil Knievel gets a lot of fucking play, but I think Hal Needham was Evil Knievel before Evil Knievel was Evil Knievel. You know? He was a bad man. Yeah, he puts a fucking rock in the back of a pickup truck, (laughs) jumps this ravine, and breaks his back on landing for the second time. Oh, and you're like, Evil Knievel, you got to bring up your game, buddy. Yeah, no, Hal Needham was a true badass for sure, man. Number four. Also, our fourth one, Rick's World War II film. Not necessarily from this, but it combines. You'll get it. It's it's really based on uh, Burt Reynolds for sure. But the 14 Fist of McCluskey. That is named after Burt's character, Gator McCluskey, from the films Gator and White Lightning. That's where we get the 14 Fists of McCluskey from. Well done. I can't believe I missed that. That was a good, good catch. Number five. I'm sure you saw this, but it slipped your mind because the only reason I saw this because it's maybe my favorite car that Tarantino's ever put in. It wasn't until I saw this again, I go, oh my God, that's where it's really from. You know, because sometimes even myself, I go, oh, well, Tarantino's going to put it in. Like, no, no, no. He got it from somewhere else. Don't, don't fool yourself, Scott. This is another reference. Well, it's the black with gold firebird Pontiac that is from the film Smoking the Bandit that Reynolds' character drives. That was definitely, definitely inspired him to give L Driver, that is her personal vehicle, and Kill Bill yeah. fly him to. And what 
a fucking way to introduce her with that car. That song, her coming down the desert road with that T-top. That was a bitch. <laughs> she's a see you next Tuesday, but she's a badass see oh, you next Tuesday. Yeah. She she rolls up in that fucking Thunderbird, and you're like, yeah, that's a fucking sweet, sweet car. I almost wish, though, it had been playing eastbound and down. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I wish we had just gone for it. <laughs> you know? Number six. Now, I'm pretty sure this is a fact. Now, I'm going to say that and to be fair, I added it into because you get to see it in this, and I did not watch Smoking the Bandit because Smoking the Bandit was not mentioned in any of his films as being, I think some people have missed it, but as really being an influence. However, there is a moment. Oh, I know what you're going to say. I'm with you 100%. When Burt Reynolds turns, breaks the fourth wall while sitting in the Bandit and smiles at us, and you know what? There's no doubt in my fucking mind that in Death Proof, when we get the great fourth wall break smile from our man Stuntman Mike in Death Proof, that was inspired by that fucking moment because yeah. it's the same yep. perfectly timed Cheshire smile and both gentlemen do it in their own way, but it works perfectly. And as soon as I saw that in the documentary, I was like, thank you for putting this in the documentary. And now I know where this fucking moment comes from because it's, it's beautiful. It's a chef's that's kiss. Well, like, it's so yeah, perfect. Well remembered on your part, man. That is true. That's a great one. That's kind of early in Smoking the Bandit, too. It's like early in the movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, nighttime, he, he looks at the camera. But there's another thing, too, you know, that I caught. Smoking the Bandit, when she's changing out of – I think it's after she's changed out of the wedding dress, Sally Field. Mm -hmm. If you notice – for a while, her feet are pressed against the windshield. Yes. And I wonder oh, if it's like, you know... Uh, yeah, there's some feet things going on for him, for sure. If you see feet in any movie that Tarantino watched, it's just like reference shot, and they're, really good. Dirty yeah. they're dirty feet pressed against the glass. It's just like, uh, what is it, a cat? Is there any kitty cat or whatever? Pussy cat. Yeah, Pussy yeah, cat, yeah. Uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I thought, that, I thought that's what you were going to say. But you're right. Yeah. That's a total... That's the same look he gives in Death Proof, man. That's so funny. And it's funny because... Bert pulls up, so basically with his left shoulder facing us, and he turns his head left, and Mike just does it the other way, mm -hmm. and they're both in sports. It's just yeah. such a great moment. And it's great because in that moment, especially in Death Proof, we're all in on Mike. We're like, kill all of them. Yeah. Okay. But he flips on us in the second half where we start hating Mike because he's like, man, this dude's a creep. And then all of a sudden we're, that's why I think it's part of, a, well, it's a genius film, but whatever. Sleep on it if you want, people. You're missing out on something great. Did you catch anything else that I may have missed that was kind of given to us in this amazing documentary that I highly recommend? And we'll get into that in a second. I'm trying to think. I'm looking. No, I don't think we. I think we covered it all, man. I think it was just. Um, I think what Quentin caught was um, the true friendship aspect of it and the true coolness of these guys. These yes. guys were cool. I mean, you want to hang out with them. You want to hang mm -hmm. out with Brick and Cliff, and you want to hang out with Hal and Bert. You know, and I think. Yeah. I think he was able to, to translate that, and, and that's the biggest takeaway for me. Is yeah, he really captured what it's like for these two guys and, and what's like to be with them and in in that world of, of tele, television and movies and I don't know I thought it was pretty neat man he did a great job and you get a chance as as you said if you didn't know any much about Burt Reynolds or you didn't think he was a great person it's these behind the scene moments where he's talking about the things he's done for him and just out of the kindness of his heart kind of like when we do get that moment uh, when we do the flashback where <laughs> Cliff beats up Bruce Lee but you got Rick in there saying look man. He looks like, like, give him a shot, yeah. right? And then he's like, all right, come on, you jackass, get an award or whatever. <laughs> and it's that kind of moment that that's what it's exactly. Well, he wouldn't have had it because Hal, Hal ran the fucking show as far as it comes to. He is the stunt guy. But well, it's that kind of thing that Burt. <laughs> well, it's what Burt did to get him that movie. movie made, right? Like they were saying, no, you shouldn't direct it. And Burt's like, look, I'll star, but he has to direct. And There's you know, no that, the rest way is history. Hell that movie gets made without Burt Reynolds. No, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. Never. Never sees it the light of day without it. So, yeah. Fantastic. It really was. That was a lot of fun, I got to tell you. Yeah. 
And now it's time to read the verdict. As far as the film The Bandit, do you think that Tarantino was inspired by the film or did he rip elements of it off? You know, I think it's all inspiration, man. So I'm going to say he was inspired by it for sure. Because he also changed a lot, but he was he was definitely inspired by it. Yeah. In the case of The Bandit, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that part of our conversation because that is us. That is us showering our love. It's us doing a once upon a time in Hollywood to this film. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1968 spy comedy, The Wrecking Crew, written by William McGivern, based on Donald Hamilton's The Wrecking Crew, and directed by Phil Carlson, starring Dean Martin, Elka Summer, Sharon Tate, Nancy Kwan, Nigel Green, and Tina Louise. It holds a 5.4 IMDb rating with no critic score and a 43 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. One billion in gold bullion has been stolen from a hijacked train in Denmark, with the main suspect being Count Massimo Contini. The U.S. government sends in Matt Helm, one of its top agents, to investigate and recover the gold. Now taking the witness stand, the wrecking crew. We're now, oh boy, we're going to jump into 1969's The Wrecking Crew, which is the film that in Once Upon a Time, Sharon Tate goes and watches, and we get amazing performance and i will defend this to the end i am tired of people saying that tarantino didn't give certain people enough to do i don't want to put words in the man's mouth but the reason that margot Robbie does not have a lot of talking parts is we are supposed to see this woman in an angelic light with the thought of we are taking her away from you in this film brutally and then he flips it on us so that we only see her as this warm inviting Vibrant life. She is the only person we see on screen who's always happy, always in a good mood, doing nice things for people, always being, I mean, Rick Rick has some rough moments. Cliff has some rough moments. Everyone in this film, except for her, has rough moments. So the fact that she's in talk a lot, she doesn't need to. She is the fairy tale we're talking about. We are watching her, and I know that's probably sexist, but it really is. Without them knowing, they slayed the dragon and saved the princess and had no idea that's what they did. Right. Right? That's she true. is the she's up on she, she's on a hill. She's in a castle yeah. on the hill. <laughs> yeah. The dragon's fucking coming for her. And they have no idea they've just slayed this dragon with a flamethrower. So a little reverse on the dragon. They dragged the dragon and fucking crisped the, the hippies that were gonna kill and her. Just like a film set, Cliff does the work and Rick gets the credit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then he does the great. The great final shot, maybe one of his best shots at the end, is he doesn't do the movie until at the end he raises up and then says, once upon a time, to tell you it was a fairy tale. Yeah. So dot, you're dot, like, dot. well, that's not how it happened. Yeah. What part of the fucking that credit with the title did you not get yeah. there, sunshine? So that being said, I stopped taking notes on this movie because after a while I was like, I'm just going to keep saying the same fucking thing. Yeah. It's like, holy fuck. Are you kidding me? What the fuck? <laughs> it's just so... In 1969, they decided to make this spy movie. But I'm going to give you a little backstory on some of the movie, and then we'll jump into it. As is shown in the film, and again, we'll get into this in the influence, we'll talk about it. There's two reasons that, that Bruce Lee's brought in. There's three reasons Bruce Lee's brought in, into the Once Upon a Time, regardless of what his, his daughter says. And look, it's his daughter, and I would expect my daughter to defend me, but I don't think she understands what Tarantino was really doing. And he even said, if there's anyone who has the right to criticize me, it's his daughter and everyone else can shut the fuck up. Yeah, that's that's what he's going on record of saying, and he doesn't say anything else. 
which is very, very professional of him to do. Mm-hmm. Because other times he will fucking light people up. <laughs> this one, he's like, I'm going to be very, very casual. Bruce Lee's in there because, one, he is the actual stunt coordinator who did all the martial arts, uh, which weird martial arts are going on in the film. And he's probably like, these are some old-ass white people. We're just going to do some karate chops and a few kicks. Like, they're, they're not, this, this is not the Matrix and this is not Kill Bill. He was not inspired by Kill Bill, or by this movie to do Kill Bill. Because this, like, even Bruce Lee's probably like, this is, this is like beginner belt like, oh, teach yeah. in my classes because he's like, this is horrific. Why these white people would even know this kung fu, uh, this, this karate, I don't even know. Especially Dean Martin, this crooner. Oh, it's like, like, to watch, man. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking genius. I kept thinking, every time he threw a kick, I'm like, he's going to pull a hammy. <laughs> so oh, I was like, this dude's pulling so a hammy. so much all of this. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Bruce Lee's in there for real. So that also then helps us when we get to see him later on in our actual film. Mm-hmm. We see that little moment where he's training her and she does the scene. Like, like you'll, she'll even like sit in the movie theater. She's like pretending to the moves he taught her, which is really cool to see. It's also, he's also there because now it ties that world together, but we need Bruce Lee in this film so that once again, it's a fairy tale, but if you were going to pick a modern day person to show a fictional character is as tough as, if not tougher for this, my generation, if you showed a character who got in a fight with Mike Tyson and gave Mike Tyson as good as he got when he was in his heyday, you would go, that's a bad motherfucker. Sure. Bruce Lee is like the king of bad. Like it's like Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali. Like you could put these guys on these maps and go. That is like the level of which we go. Oh, that's a bad fucking dude. So we had to see that he had the ability to do this. Like he was not afraid of Bruce Lee. He had no fear. He tricked Bruce Lee. If you read the book, it really yeah. goes into the whole psychology of how he fought him, and even gets Bruce Lee psychology. So I think the book really does help anyone who has this like this weird feeling about it. But we needed Bruce Lee as he is the. He's the bar to which we now know that Cliff's a bad motherfucker. So then when the end events happen, because that way we don't have to do some kind of flashback to him at war. You know what I mean? That's heavy handed. Tarantino's rarely heavy handed in his films. So he gives you this moment so that we can see that one Cliff is a fuck up. We get, you know, but it's, it's a funny antidote of why he didn't get to be picked for the set. But at the same time, it shows that he fucking fought Bruce Lee. And some would say, sure, he got kicked down. But he did throw his little ass into a car and dent a door. I think if we're scoring points, that's a little bit tougher. I think even Bruce Lee was surprised, fictional Bruce Lee, that is, of course, that he got thrown into the car door. So we need Bruce Lee so we know that Cliff is a bad motherfucker. So when he goes ahead and he's on LSD and he doesn't give a fuck and he fucks these people up, sure. we know that, oh, yeah, he has, he's afraid of nobody, right? Because you're going to yep. stare down Bruce Lee. You're not, you're not afraid of anything. So, and, and it's already been established that he's got a pretty firm control over Brandy as well. So we've seen the two things we need to see, that Brandy does what he says and that he can kick the shit out of Bruce Lee. Yeah. Yes. And that Brandy, that also, if you're going to get a guard dog, <laughs> get a brown leather couch at the door that your dog can blend into and camouflage and no one sees. And then that is fucking, oh, that's that was a weapon of mass destruction. Oh, that was that was, Yeah. Oh, beautiful dog. Anyways, so that's that. Now, this is a true story because at the end of this film, God, you know, another, you know, unfortunate blessing from her passing is that there were no more of these fucking films made. At the end of the film, there's, it says, don't worry, he'll be back in Ravagers the or Ravagers, something like that. Yeah. 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 Now, I don't know how I feel about Dean Martin. And sometimes I think he is also a caricature of the world he comes from. Sure. So, sure, sure. Yeah. So I, I don't know that Dean Martin is the guy that he's portraying in this well, film. Dean Martin's really. in so, a joke, I think. Yeah. I he always is. understood that. Yeah. But he was so distraught over the brutal murder of his co star, Sharon mm-hmm. Tate. Six months after this film was released, 
that he passed on playing this role of Matt Helm ever again and not another Matt Helm movie, thankfully, has ever been made <laughs> yeah. after it. Sure. That, that says a lot about him. I mean, I mean, look, they work on screen a lot together in this film, especially towards the end. And some was we're going to do, she may have carried the film. But, no, um, I think she does, yeah. But the I'm... two of them, really, and he really, I mean, obviously he really saw a lot in her. I don't think it was just a physical attraction. I think he really liked working with her. He liked her comedic timing for what the 60s was. And so I think... I mean, he really was distraught, and he was like, no, it would be a, like a disservice to this film, yeah. this film series, to move forward without her as a, somehow a part of it. So, big up to him before he passes. And then, contrary to probably what I said earlier, this was not Sharon Tate's last role. That belongs to the 1969 movie The 13 Chairs, or depending on how it's written, some places it's 12 plus 1. Don't understand where that's a change. 1 is 12 plus 1. <laughs> In America, it's The 13 Chairs. Whatever. Doesn't matter. But... That film opened internationally in late November of 69, which is only a couple months after her death. Right, it did not see a release here in the United States till May of 70, so just shy of a year of her passing. And that is the last time that Sharon Tate was on film until the amazing Margot Robbie brought her back to life in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Now, let me start by saying on my journey of this year, which I have absolutely enjoyed, I have watched 24 films, a few I've seen, and most I had not because okay. I wanted to take the journey through the films that Tarantino had really referenced and some major references. And a lot of them were, I've watched films from the 40s, and probably the most recent one is the 2016. That's probably the most current film was that documentary. So I've watched movies from the 40s with Bogart. I've watched... Kubrick's early stuff. Kubrick's most, one of my favorite movies of all time in A Clockwork Orange. So I've had a real breadth of film, eye-opening stuff that I've seen. And I will say this. That journey has really opened my eyes as I probably knew. But you know, it's like um, when someone loses weight or as your kids grow, you see it before your eyes. So it's a slow change that you don't recognize. But when you're able to go back and see it over, like you go back and look at pictures, you go, Holy shit, how was that two years? You know what I mean? Like, like you see the change yeah. because you you know you don't have the reference from when it started to where you are now. So seeing the films from the 40s till now, a lot has changed. A lot yeah. has changed. We're talking the sexism, blatant racism, <laughs> and wild shit they got away with in films, probably up until the 70s. And then, I mean, just still get away with that stuff in the 90s. There's some, there's some stuff that We've gotten away with over time. Like, even 94, and I'll talk about it next season when we talk about Pulp Fiction, we will bring up Jimmy's speech. Oh, we'll talk about yeah. how that's probably one of, the, one, of the, one of the moments that does not last. It has not lasted the test of time. Yeah, it hasn't aged well. <laughs> we'll get to that then. But this film, I knew I was in for it. This film opens with a song <laughs> that is... I know what you're going to say. It is so racist. Yep. It's bizarre because, one... When you hear the song, you think, okay, okay. I, look, I grew up also watching the reruns of the Warner Brothers, so they did a lot of, like, slant-eyed stuff, and then they, you know, like, ding, 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 like, they, oh, that, that sound, like, bum, 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 like, they, they played that all the time, it's like, oh, this person's from the Orient, you know what I mean? Like, when you grew up in the, the era that we grew up in, and before that, that was just a common thing you saw on TV. Sure. And so, you, so, like, honestly, if you hear that, and as soon as I heard this in the song, I was like, oh. Okay, so we're playing in this sandbox, all right? Um, but not only is it like an Asian theme, racist connotated song that they're just literally being stereotypical and making fun of it. So I thought, okay, this movie must take place in the Orient. Like, it has to, like, because that's what they're going with. 
Nope. It's about white people in Denmark that they didn't bring in an Asian person (laughs) who will get to her name in a second. (laughs) And you're like, what does this have to do with anything that's happening? It's like, keep saying, ah, so. Yeah, exactly. Ah, so. I was like, ah, so, ah, so. I was like, you mean asshole. That's what you mean. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, this has got to take place. Like, I read the description wrong. It doesn't take place on a train in Denmark. This has got to be somewhere in the Orient. Like, that's the only reason I could think, nope. They said, fuck it. Fuck it. We are going to do this the way we want to do it. Well, there's that one, what is it, a restaurant, the seven somethings or other, the House of the Seven Pleasures? Seven. I don't, seven something. That's the only kind of reference to Asian besides Nancy Kwan's character, who's, you know, that's, yeah. Well, yeah. So the the Asian woman in the film, if you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's the fight that we see Sharon Tate have, mm-hmm. <laughs> which. <laughs> Let's be honest. Every Asian person watching that film back then was like, no fucking way. Sharon Tate is beating her ass. I'm sorry. Like, you could telegraph these punches. <laughs> like, they're probably like, whatever. But her name was When You Rang. <laughs> when You Rang. Which is not lost on Dean Martin's character. Not lost on Matt Helm. <laughs> no, 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 no. Nothing's getting by Matt Helm. <laughs> so, <laughs> before we dive further in, what was your first impression of this film and the opening? Did you go in hoping that this is going to be like, you're like, oh, this is going to be such a good Sharon Tate movie and it's going to be funny and I'm going to enjoy this as a comedy. And then all of a sudden be like, I should not have answered that email. <laughs> no, no, I was really into it. So I'm shockingly as much as I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I had not seen this movie. My only frame of reference for this movie was just knowing pop culture stuff and of course seeing the fight scene. And I, and I knew the story of Matt Helm and all that kind of stuff. My biggest takeaway off, right off the bat was it's hard to watch because it just doesn't hold up, right? It's like, oh, this is tough. Um, it's just nonsensical. It's fucking stupid. This is one of the most convoluted plots you've oh, ever come across in your life. You can pick apart all day long. I mean, it's just it's oh. just nutty. Like this is what we need to save the gold. This middle aged fucking Dean Martin, <laughs> and they needed and they needed Bruce Lee to choreograph this. Shit. I could have choreographed this shit. Okay, go to a crappy kick over there, then walk slowly to a crappy kick over there, and I would have done it for free. <laughs> you don't need Bruce. Here's the thing: I will give Bruce Lee credit because he probably was like, "These racist fucks think they need an Asian person." This goes. I'm going to take the fucking money. Yeah, yeah. And they're going to think this is the greatest Kung Fu ever. He goes, I don't even teach this to my son. I would, this is how not to fight in a fight. But go ahead and put this in your fucking yeah, movie. It is so ridiculous. <laughs> a waste of Bruce Lee's abilities. But um, the biggest thing that really, like to flip it on the positive side, is like, okay, the big story in this movie is Sharon Tate, right? I mean, yes. And yes, it's, it's, it's uh, Dean Martin's movie. He's the lead in it. But Sharon Tate carries this film. Oh, and God, the relationship yes. with, with, with Dean Martin carries the film, I think. Uh, she's the most likable character. She's yes. funny. She's the, com- she's the comedic relief. She's the comedy relief in this thing. Yes. And she's undeniably sexy as well and yes. beautiful and likable. And to me, taking away how shitty the movie is, and, and she's not going to win any awards for this. Well, she's great in it. And her chemistry is good with Dean Martin. But it makes Margot's portrayal more likable as well. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. I go back now and I look at what Margot's doing, and I'm like, oh, man. She's really honoring mm-hmm. this this light and this energy that I think Sharon Tate had. Because she she's she really is a likeness film. She carries it. And she's she's not the lead. You know, it's Dean Martin's movie. But she I think she carries the film. Yeah, this is a, this is a smutty James Bond. And it's basically... Well, it's a spoof. I mean, kind of... It's a spoof, for sure. 
but it is heavy on the sex it, or the mm -hmm. sexual innuendos. And at this time, Dean Martin is in his 50s. He's oh, like yeah. 52. And honestly, I think Dean Martin took the role to one, be around some beautiful women and still like try to, because well, this is late 69. At this point, people listen to Dean Martin. Their parents are listening to it. And it's like their Christmas music. Like right. at this point, Dean Martin really isn't relevant. And they bring him in just to do like these crooner songs, which is so weird because he's crooning like it's the 40s. And we're in late 60s. Like, we have right. long shot past crooner times. As you said, Dean, for some reason, there's gold bullion being moved across Denmark. Oh God, it's worth a billion so dollars. It's so much right. gold. So let's break it and down so precariously, it's so precariously put up in that car <laughs> that those guys are playing cards in that one jostle would have brought the entire thing of gold down and then crushed them. Yeah. And then... And to guard this, <laughs> I was like, what the fuck's happening? It's one train, it's one car on a train, on a, like a cargo train, and they have four guys guarding it. And to guard it, the four guys look at the wall in front of them. They're not looking around, they're just <laughs> going by scenery. Is anyone on the train? They're staring at the car. Oh. I thought, this is some fucking jackassery going on. And then right when now. it gets stolen, the idea is we're going to move it to the Candido's house, stack yep. it up on the wall for less than 48 hours. So we're going to stack it, put it back on a train. <laughs> what was the point of all that? I don't, I don't understand. And then we're going to put in other bricks and paint it to look gold, right. at which we never see again. Never saw that again. I was like, never saw it again. What's going on here? Matt Helm doesn't see it. I think it's behind that curtain that's in his office. I think that was at some point supposed to be opened up and we see it. Uh, we never, you know what I mean? Editing, we yeah. never I, see that again. Never. But that's where I kind of think, so So go back a bit. So I, you know, these books are actually serious. So the movies have nothing to do with the books, right? The books were actually yeah. kind of serious. Uh, there's been long time rumors of re, uh, rebooting Matt Helm. Most recently, there's been talk of like, even like um, uh, Bradley Cooper doing Matt Helm. Like it, kind of like a Jason Bourne thing. Spielberg's been attached. So this, these books were legit. The movie rights were purchased, and the movies had nothing to do with that shit. They were these spoofs. I think Dean Martin's in on the joke. Like, you know, you mentioned the crooning. It's only the crooning only comes right before he thinks he's going to get laid, right? So every time he sees a yes. girl, he's singing, and it's and it's literally kind of narrating what's about to happen. <laughs> That's how we meet him. He's like, the, somehow he's America's top agent. Oh, God. No I'm, idea how. They'd have been better off with me. No idea. <laughs> Truly. He is living somewhere in the most bizarre circumstances. He's got a bunch of hot women mm -hmm. dressed up in the most ridiculous outfits you've ever seen also that dean martin could pretend he's sleeping and then dreaming of each woman right. and singing a line from a song like it's a bad rap album right. and adding in the outfit she's in so one person's for some reason wearing like a phone so that the phone is hung up on her breast right. and he sings something about calling her and another lady's got like a fire on her head and he can light a cigarette and he sings something about keeping her light like they're freaking ridiculous and this so goes i was like what like the 10 12 minutes yes I'm like, yes. this is tedious shit. Like, I'm, I'm over this. <laughs> and then he, but then he does make a little tongue in cheek line. But by this time, it's not even funny because you're just like, what the hell's happening? But he says something, do you know how much it cost me or something like that for, for their dime or something? So I'm like, is he paying these women for this? Like, there's no rhyme or reason for Matt Helm to be somewhere he doesn't need to be. Well, this is where I started to think that maybe it was also, it's really, you know, who drew inspiration for this was Austin Powers, right? We have this, yeah, oh, yeah, this spy who's, who's posing as a high fashion model. I was like, oh, this is Austin Powers. <laughs> Except Austin He's Powers a photographer or some bullshit. It is painful. It yeah, is painful. It's rough, it's rough to watch, man. Yeah, yeah. But I can't decide if some of the stuff is genius or also goes to, sh you know, kind of state like even back in the day, like, so whatever us as humans and maybe us as Americans, I can't tell if it's, if it's which it is. Whenever we're shown something, we believe it wholesale. We don't even question it. And what I mean is this guy 
who's the the villain, the Bond villain, who's robbing this train right. for a reason. Really, with, with, there's really no point. It's Operation Rainbow. That makes no sense. Yeah, that's never no idea what's happening. And there's like, like 15 phases. Phase 8 yeah. complete. <laughs> and then, then there's like there's a time limit for each phase. Like, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? But yeah. he has, he's got like this, <laughs> the CTV cameras. Before there are CTV cameras. But the fun thing is, is that since there's no such thing as this technology yet, and they're making it up, all it really is is them looking up at obviously blank screens, but they film things as if it was filmed from a film camera. So some of the angles they're getting makes no sense as there's a camera. Because there's one that like looks up under the train, the guy stepping over, like why would there be a camera there? there's, like, there's an aerial shot. shot. It, none of this makes sense. Right. Like there's the, and then like even later on we can like see each other. Like it's none of this makes sense. So I don't know if it's genius but, like to just, you know, because like it's like a sci-fi movie. Cause we've had things invented in sci-fi. That now become like, if anyone doesn't know, sliding doors like at grocery stores and mm -hmm. even like for elevators got their sliding open because of how popular Star Trek was. Star Trek, so yeah, people absolutely. made doors to slide open like Star Trek. Right. So I can't decide if that's genius or just jackassery. But like, every time I saw it, I was like, where are these cameras? Like these cameras are so noticeable God. at this point. Like they're literally in the person's face and they're like, they have no idea they're there. No, you're absolutely right. Like I, that, one of the first things I noticed right off the bat of oh, the train, the angles on the train, I'm like, where are these cameras? Like in the sky? <laughs> <laughs> there was a drone back there? Yeah, this is like, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny that you say that. It was, but you know, when you pull back, like to try to put somewhat of a positive spin on it, I was trying to think, okay. Because I know I'm, I'm going to be talking to you, and we're going to try to talk about the ins <laughs> what inspiration has had in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I will say this. Quentin Tarantino is like six years old when you see this movie, right? So he sees yes. the movie six years old. And when you think about it, like the aesthetic, the funness of it. One thing that this movie really reminded me of is when we first see Sharon Ting Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and she's dancing on the airplane to Pan Am. Yes. That, there's that vibe. Yes. free love. It's 60s. Nothing possibly can ever go wrong in her world, right? And I think there's some of that. I think I think he oh, definitely great. drew from, and, and, and let's face it, this is like a stew of pop culture. Because yeah, it's Dean Martin who's not relevant at that point. But you got some of the most badass chicks, and you got Elka Summer and, and uh, Nancy Quag, even Tina Louise is in this damn thing, and of course Sharon Tate. And so I think I think when you look at it, that kind of stayed with him, the aesthetic of what that felt like. Because Quentin's not just making it look like 1969; he makes you feel like it. I mean, even though even the Playboy Mansion seems a little bit wholesome, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it seems sexy yeah, as yeah. shit, and I wanted to be there, but no, yeah. a lot. But it's like it was wholesome. It was like her dancing; that she had a care in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. So, oh, great. That's what I think he's kind of pulling from. That's about as positive as I can be, Scott. What I also loved about it, though, and again, I can't tell if it's tongue in cheek or if they just don't fucking know what they're doing. But they, then this is how I knew it was a James Bond spoof because, you know, they, of course, they bring him to some guy and, like, there's going to have these special things in his trunk that never materializes. There is what looks like sock grenades, which I will say, for pyrotechnics, right. they blew some stuff up. I was like, <laughs> they really blew that up. And I don't know how they did it. And it was spectacular, but the guy shows Dean Martin, crooner, panty swooner, how to throw this grenade. And he throws it over a wall, obviously, so we can hide it. But there's a really, like, almost a Metallica-like explosion behind yeah. this wall. And I was like, okay. And then two seconds later, we don't change camera angles. We don't cut. Dean Martin does the same. So either they had this thing set up and we, so we couldn't see it. Or maybe there was some kind of explosion because also I was like, they did it twice. I was like, I was impressed. I was like, oh, okay. We're blowing shit. Like, we're actually yeah. blowing things up. And they blew up the car, but we never sure used did. it. But why did they have to make the noise? The sock made the noise. Like, before, before you even throw it, it goes, 
Well, the, the, the thing is, is they never use it. They throw it twice, right. and we never see it again in the film. It no. never comes back to life. It was like, there's our budget. We, we can only use this once. Well, and also, the helicopter, they, they kind of mention it early on with the, with the sock yeah. bombs, and I think it doesn't take it, it doesn't take long to put together. But where yeah. is he keeping it? Was it in the trunk? Because all of a sudden, this motherfucker's driving a helicopter. <laughs> I don't know where. Here? The most <laughs> dangerous helicopter you can be in. There's no windshield. No it's a convertible helicopter. Right. That seems like like you're flying at whatever speed the helicopter's going. you got to be getting in the face with shit. Like, it doesn't yeah. seem like this is a good thing to fly. No, it's all a mess. Oh, I love, too, like, towards the end, like, there's that, that scene where that, that one fella, Matt Helms' boss, is in the hospital. Yes. Because he got shot. It seemed pretty fine to me, but he's in the hospital, and, like, several people there, one of them was a military guy. He's like, I'm going to send in some troops. And the guy's like, no. Only Matt Helm can do it. I'm like, I know the troops probably sounds about right. That gold's only behind a little bit of drywall right there. I don't think we need Matt Helm to fucking do it. Send it to fucking troops. <laughs> Matt Helm and his camera that shoots out smoke that doesn't do anything. So when, he, so when he does this, I think, oh, he's gassing people. But he puts on goggles. I'm thinking, why does he need the guy? Like, how's this? I don't know, man. It's, it's so bad. I can get through some of this. So here's the, the best, some of your, your funniest stuff is Matt Helm gets into this fight with some other Asian men. Probably would have whooped his ass. But when you watch poor Dean Martin, who's like 6'4", he, like he should have been playing in the NBA if he wasn't a crooner. He was a tall dude. Yeah, yeah. And when he kicks, it looks, I mean, he's able to get his legs up a bit. And, and look, I was impressed that he was at least limber enough to do some of these kicks. I'm sure he only did a few of them. I was like, that's fucking it. You're, and you're, being, you're being kind before limber. I, I'm being kind. <laughs> he does a few kicks and you're like, mm. Okay, and then we cut to a higher shot where we can get the stunt double, who we can definitely tell is a stunt double. But this dude is definitely doing the Bruce Lee kicks. Like this is a he's like spinning back kicks, right, right, people. Right. And you're like, looks a lot more limber. <laughs> yeah. Like Matt can barely get his foot up waist level, and then he kicks, looks awkward. But he's got a big leg and foot, so yeah, it works. But then this next guy, the stunt double, is just like a fucking ballerina, perfect everything, just drop kicking people, and these karate chops. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was a young lad and used to fool around with my brother. And karate chops are annoying. I'm not gonna lie, they hurt. They're right. just, but they piss you off. People are getting knocked out in these. Okay. <laughs> this is like another down. Like it's okay. so Austin Powers, judo chop. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh my god. So, 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 point, so I watched this twice, right? And the first time watching, I'm on an airplane. I'm going to New York. I'm on an airplane, and Sharon, you know, uh, what's her name again? Mrs. Carlson, Mrs. Carlson, right? Yes, yes. Cars. Well, this is where she now comes out in her sexy white outfit to start kind of seducing Matt Helm. And like, I don't know, it shakes her ass in his face. I don't know. I'm watching this movie and I think I got distracted. Look, wait, and I look back and she's now seducing him. I'm like, oh, what did I miss? Like, what led to this? Clearly, there was an inciting incident that led to this. So I rewind. Nope. She just comes out start shaking her ass in his face like what the fuck is going on in this movie well, that's the biggest drawback and i feel bad for sharon because i was just the 60s i, I mm. get it I, I get it i mean james, at least in the james bond films there seemed to be a reason why the women were drawn to sean connery i mean to be honest with you if you yeah. had a choice between sean connery or fucking 50 year old what's his face you'd take a sean <laughs> connery Martin, I'm getting it. even though i know sean connery is a little abusive to the ladies i, I know he tells oh, more than once Tells you more than once. <laughs> You'll go home and fuck the prom queen. Anyways, um, that that was the disappointing thing is all these women are throwing themselves at him for no reason at all. He seems almost dumbfounded that they are. There doesn't seem to be a reason. Like, they're turning on each other. I don't know what's happening. And then she seems to be jealous that these women are doing that. But we get zero reason why that would be. Yeah. And like you said, all of a sudden when she was shaking her ass, I was thought, so I watched this on Tubi. And so there's a commercial every 30 minutes, whatever it was. And I was like, did I miss it in the commercial break? Like before the commercial break, did I blink and miss 
that she is into him. Right. And then, of course, at the end, they've Same saved thing. the world, yeah. and she somehow goes in, showers, puts on a sexy see-through nightgown, and they're going to... Yeah. And now there's a bed in the fucking train. Like, what male fucking fancy train is this? This is a fucking predator train. That's what it's this nuts. is. It's Someone is going around on a track with ladies locked up in these fucking cans and bringing them in here and doing terrible things to them. This is the original... Matt Helms is a sex trafficker on this train. What's going on here? It's I was like, where did this all happen from? Yeah. It's so bizarre. It's just crazy. No rhyme or reason to any of it. Well, the movie ends with them kissing, mm -hmm. about to have sex, and then they pull like the brake and the train stops too fast. And it's like, don't worry, folks. I like the little teletape comes across. <laughs> don't worry, folks. Even that was It'll be back. To watch. It was like too slow. Yeah. Every time they did the teletape thing, you're like, what? It's the first after credit sequence. It's your first, oh, well, you guys in our seats. Wait, but there's something, there's more to it. Right. And then, <laughs> and then like you said, they ended it with uh, he'll be back in the Ravagers, which didn't happen because of, of no. Sharon. Yeah. Thank God. I don't know. I mean, I guess if we get Austin Powers out of these films, then they're worth that. And if we get a chance to see Sharon Tate, who, like you said, the only, my only uh, downfall for her is that she had to have this stupid turn. And become a sex object for yeah. me because there's a moment in the car that I thought one of two things. Either I'm not in on this joke or Dean Martin has forgotten his fucking lines. And she's yelling at him about slow down this and he's just kind of making faces at the camera like he's almost like, where's my card? I can't see my card to yeah. respond. She's, she's having a conversation in the car and he's not saying anything until he says, hold on to your miniskirt. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. No, it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty bad. I mean, like I said, I was trying so hard, like, okay, what can I pull from this? And and uh, there's a couple things. I think, well, there's a lot of badass women. In, well, they're, they're supposed to be bad. Yeah. No one's able to kill Matt Helm, by the way, which that lost my mind. <laughs> so no he's got, look, he's got a long reach with his legs. A six foot four frame. He's got long legs. None of these women do. that he's alone with can get this <laughs> job done. But I was thinking, okay, well, maybe when, when Quentin's watching this, maybe that's that's where the, 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 the juice start flowing for Kill Bill with these badass women, you know, you've got an Asian <laughs> one, a Bond one. <laughs> you know, Somerset O'Neill, her specialty was sex. Right, yeah, so, right, you know, the, yeah. so Fox Force Five women here. So maybe that's where this starts. I certainly think, you know, one thing is, is Sharon's innocence. And then the Bruce Lee thing, too. I mean, Bruce Lee, when you look at the Manson murders, like he's one of the names. So when, when that first happened, they're grasping for straws, man. Like they know Charles Manson didn't even come up until months later, right? They're, they're, what the fuck happened? Early on, Bruce Lee's one of the names that came up. Not that he might have done it, but his name was in there because he was in that world. He was her trainer. Yeah. Um, you know, he was he was Jay Sebring's uh karate trainer or kung fu, whatever the fuck it was. So there's there's that too. I mean, so like I think when you look at this movie, it's Sharon Tate, it's Bruce Lee, it's these beautiful women, it's that 60s aesthetic, it's that fun. And I think he just took some of that and tried to recreate that in, in this world. And I'm trying to look at the positive of it because it's it's not a great movie. I think Wait Tarantino would argue it's not a great movie. But again, he was six years old when he saw it, right? Well, it, I mean, it works for his film. If we're gonna talk about Sharon Tate, that's the film that comes out. Obviously, I bet he wished it was the Valley of the Dolls or something like that. That was a little what she, you know, she was a little more known for. Yeah. But speaking of Bruce, we said his name earlier. Mr. Oh. Chuck fucking Norris. Norris is in this. That's right, man. He's in there for two scenes. One, he just stares there, and he's, you get his normal Chuck Norris stare. You're like, oh, there's Texas Walker right there, Ranger over here. And then he gets he gets beaten up quickly. Like he's like punched once, and he's gone. But he's the toughest-looking guy on screen. Oh, and so, obviously, he's also a student of Bruce Lee. So, Bruce obviously probably got him in. Yeah. But, unfortunately... I mean, I, I bet if, if Chuck had, he was still too young, but he he would have been a better villain or a heavier. You know, yeah. the one thing we were missing is they they used the female, which I, I had no problem with when you rang. <laughs> I had no problem. 
But when you rang, at least in Bond, they do sexual names like Pussy Galore. Right. They don't go right out. It's not, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not so racist. This is just straight up fucking. Not only are we going to be racist about this girl, we're going to make an Asian-themed song that has nothing to do with this movie. Oh, so. Just to be dicks. Yeah. Ah, so, when yeah. you rang, you're like, where yeah, we go? Uh, and poor Bruce Lee's got to sit there and go. I could kill every one of you. <laughs> he, he, also at this point, he is so hungry to be a star. And, and Quentin Tarantino oh, yeah. just doesn't like him. I mean, he's he's said it before. I think there's some debate on Bruce Lee having had the idea for Kung Fu, the show, before whatever network made it. So I'm, Tarantino definitely isn't a fan, right? But like you said, he's only want to take shit from the family. Otherwise, he, he says, you can fuck off. Well, but he's also smart enough to know that if you're going to... Who's your toughest guy? How are you going to prove he's tough without right. doing flashbacks? That's fair. Yeah, you fight absolutely. Bruce Lee. Yeah. You fight Bruce, that's it. You know what I mean? Even he knows. He works for a million reasons in this whole thing. You know, I mean, he was tied into the, the you know, with, this pe- with the people in real life. He was in this movie with Sharon and or choreographed the, the, the fight scene. So, yeah, it all kind of works. But, you know, I don't know. It, it's it's a movie that doesn't hold up, but it's um it's pop it's pop culture gold, though, man. <laughs> you know, it's Dino Martin and Sharon Hayes. And it doesn't hold up just because it's just like the, the, the jokes don't really land. And Dean Martin seems to just be kind of like going through it for a paycheck. Like, he's, you know, he's he's okay, but he's just like... Not once do you think he's a spy. No, not at all. Not once do you think he's anything but like, oh, this is just Dean Martin as a crooner who's now a creepy guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? like he's, like, he's like a pedophile. Like, he's a predator. Like, yeah. he, but but in his fairness, the women are throwing themselves at him. And even he seems to be like, really? Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. kind of like, really? Really? <laughs> he's not even surprised. Like, really? Me? Yeah. It's, this is before it's, Viagra. He's like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if, if little Frankie. It wasn't neat that Sinatra got a song in there, too. I'm sure he was like, ah, Frankie, come on. Here's a song. Throw it in here. We'll get you. <laughs> when he's trying to make love to the first girl who wants the lights, ch- and then she blows yeah. up from scotch. That was a... Uh... That was Tina Don't Lee. go into this was... movie with your thinking caps on. If you go in with that, you're gonna your brain's yeah. gonna wriggle. The it's Scotch not gonna be a wreck. That was um, looking better than I've ever seen. That was Tina Louise. That was Ginger from uh, Gilligan's Island. You know, it does go to those old tropes, like like this older man, this Leonardo DiCaprio type, yep. <laughs> who only dates the young type. Sure. It's kind of that whole kind of essence to it, which oh, it's the one drawback that hurts at the end. It's because of how good Sharon is, and there is no reason or rhyme why she is suddenly throwing herself. At Matt Helm. No, not at all. He pretty much debases her the entire film. She's unlucky. She's a piece of shit. She gets him in trouble. Yep. She cock blocks him the whole film. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, 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 let me sing a crooner song and let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I will say this. At least he never gets laid in the whole movie. <laughs> so, no, because he's about to and they hit the break yep. and he goes... That's they get killed. So. Never happened, so yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I will say, you know, um, sadly, when I was watching that movie, it made me appreciate Margot Robbie more because I'm like, wow, Sharon's pretty great. I mean, she was a light in this movie and talented yeah. and pretty, and it's really horrible what happened to her, man. So. And now it's time to present the evidence. Well, we'll wrap it up as we have very small influences, and really more of the influences are the reason for the use of it and really how we then use the real life events to connect to our story so that we can add some fiction to make that story work. Number one. Obviously the first is we use this film to tie in Bruce Lee. This film helps tie Bruce Lee into once upon a time. How Otherwise there's no reason. I mean, obviously he had a central character, but Tarantino saw that Bruce Lee was not only, as you said, Sebring's personal trainer, did the fight choreographies, and it's a good little moment. So there's still some good moments with Bruce besides the little fight flashback. 
You know, even though they're small, when he's talking with her, like, yeah. you kind of feel like he's just taking the money from Sebring, but he really does like Shannon. Like, she's such a light. Like, he's. He high fives her. It's a kind of a cool. Yeah, moment. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, you know what? Nice job, white lady. He's like, good job. <laughs> You're not Matt Helm. But if we don't have Bruce Lee and we don't have his interaction with Cliff, how do we know that Cliff is going to be the guy he turns out to be? This is before the book. So you can yeah, read the right. book and go into the movie and go, yeah, of course. The guy's a fucking killer. Yeah. How do we do it? And Bruce Lee is the stick to which all men were measured to. He is the badass. Whether it's right or not. I, I've always loved Bruce Lee. I always thought he was a badass. I would never talk shit to Bruce Lee. Before you could say, when you rang, he would kick my teeth out of my face. So I never would never mess with Bruce Lee. <laughs> but he's that bar. Like, that's what we, we need. It. So this film, being able to use it, helps connect dots that otherwise we don't make it down the path. There's a lot of things that don't happen Agreed. if Cliff isn't home, certain, certain things. So sure. Bruce Lee is that little, without people noticing it, he's that little dot that helps connect these two worlds from fictional to reality and gives us an insight to why Cliff is the badass he is and is able to do what he does at the end. Right. Like you said, he doesn't get any credit because good old Rick's out there. Ah, I'll burn one of them to a crisp. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you, Rick? But he even gets, he even gets, he's the one at the end is with JC bringing Sharon tickets to walk up the driveway. Cliff's yep. son's way to fucking hospital. But he's a nice guy and he understands what Cliff did for him. So as we yeah. read in the book, he does bring him along. So, sure so does, Rick is a good guy. Rick, like even though Rick takes some credit, he yes, he does. He brings him along. So it becomes a director like how need him, yeah, for sure. Number two. And then obviously the other one would be obviously the scenes we get. So we get two main scenes from this film into Once Upon a Time, and that is when she first meets Matt Helm and falls over the suitcase. She's like the klutz, and she says in the beginning of the film. And we get the laugh, and she smiles. So we get that real. Yeah. Hey, there's, there's just something warm about that. Like I said, she's the bright spot of this entire film. And those of you who are of an age to remember the Mansons know that when you're watching it for the first time, it's haunting because you're watching this. You're watching beautiful Margot Robbie play a beautiful character with not just beauty on the outside, but beauty on the inside. A real amazing human being. And the whole time you're sitting there going, "God damn it, they're gonna yeah. fucking butcher this woman." And you feel good at the end that they don't, but in reality, you go. God damn, they butchered like the movie's great to live with that as like the fairy tale. And go, oh, she's alive. But in reality, you, you go, God damn it! Like I was, that's what I did when I was watching this film. Right. Sometimes I would have to get myself back in the film as I'm thinking, like, Jesus Christ! Like she was fucking butchered. Like you know, it's it's hard. Sometimes you gotta yeah. go, oh my god, I gotta just watch this movie, not think about the reality of what really happened to this poor woman. No, world. yeah, there were times when I was watching the Wrecking Crew. I'm like, wow, Sharon Tate's amazing looking, and there she is dancing. I'm like, oh shit! Like damn it. Uh -huh. She's, you know, a year, a year later, she's eight months pregnant and dead. I'm like, that's awful. Yeah, it's, it's awful. It's a gut punch. It really is. To see yeah. that. It also gives us a chance to see her, her acting chops, to see who she is and why she is who she is. Because again, unfortunate thing for Sharon Tate is she is a, a moment in history that is only known for that moment. Like OJ Simpson. Anyone of my age really knows OJ Simpson. You know him from some of the movies. You know he's a football player, but we remember him from his moment in time. Right. And that's where OJ Simpson always lives. When you say OJ Simpson, the first thing I don't go is he was a Buffalo Bills running back. He was a Heisman <laughs> yeah. Trophy winner. You know what I mean? I don't think that was like I was like he got away with murdering two bitches, <laughs> <laughs> two people. Like he got away yeah. with this shit. Uh, I mean, almost the next closest thing to the Manson murders, that's really, of, of the brutality but for our generation. Like, really, that was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, look up what happened, and it's he. Whew, some of the things that happened there, they're brutal, yeah. brutal, brutal. The things that really happened. tough to watch. Yeah, tough to look at. So like OJ's in that moment of time, right? So now, so Sharon Tate. When people say Sharon Tate, oh, she was part of the Manson murders, yeah. and like her being uh, an actress is an afterthought. Tarantino 
in this film was able to hopefully, especially for a younger generation, I think is great. Some people like I've had a conversation with my buddy Sean, who's on a couple of times where so there are people who didn't realize she actually died in the end. Like they thought that was the end of the movie. Right. Like that was the real ending. Like they have no idea. Sure. She was brutalized the way she was. That's that's a kudos to Tarantino for being able to like change yeah, the history of life. He he's talked about that. Like he wanted he wanted to take her back for me, like what you said, from that one moment in time which has gone on to define her now. And and in, in something you said earlier, you know, a lot of people piss and moan that she doesn't have a lot of dialogue and maybe it's sexist. And one thing too that he said is like, you know what? I didn't want to give her dialogue. I did not want to turn her into a Quentin Tarantino character. That was important to me. Yeah. Right. So 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 what he wanted to do was steal back that moment in time and just give her you know, give people another appreciation for her other than what we know of, which is, you know, she was just this lady who was murdered when she was pregnant, and, you know, 50 years ago. So, yeah. Those are the two main things that come up because, obviously, this is a movie that gets brought into the film, so it's it's a very meta moment of inspiration. Yeah. It's all, it's, you know, we really get the, uh, the characterization. So, you know, even in the film, when we see Sharon, you know, oh, she's the husband, she's the wife of so-and-so, Roman Polanski, and then he finally leaves. Like, this is that moment when she gets away from the house, the second day, when the second day is always the best. The middle of the film is when everything gets really good. Like, the opening is amazing, and the ending is great, but that middle section of the second day, that Sunday, yeah. Rick shoots Lancer, what's-name goes to Spawn Ranch, sure. and she goes out and watches a movie. That's the meat of that film. That's where everyone falls in love with that film, because it's that it sets the stage for what we think is coming. We have no clue what's coming. And so... Getting to see her walk around, go to her own movie, be so giddy about it, sit there in the audience, and and when people like like what she does, that like quick admiration, like like that joyful. It's not. It's kind of like like yeah, it's right, bitches. I'm fucking awesome. It's kind of like she's like, oh my god, they love me. Like yeah. like this works. Like I I'm, I am doing what I want because as you know, even though we're doing podcasting and we're not on her level or anyone else, but you do want. You do hope people appreciate what you do. Absolutely. You know, like like yeah. like we do because we love doing it, but there's a sense that you want someone to be like, hey, you know, I, I like your podcast. I like some things, and not just be like, you're a fucking idiot. You know what I mean? Like, because that's <laughs> yeah, easy to yeah. say. It's easy to go, hey, you're a fucking clown. Yeah. Suck a dick kind of thing. It's like, oh well, thanks, mom. No, it's good. <laughs> yeah, no, and, you know, this was and for her too. This was this wasn't just comedy. It was physical comedy, something she hadn't done, and to be able to to enjoy it where no one was going to just pat her on the back and say you're a pretty girl, so she could watch it and and enjoy that other people were also enjoying it was huge for her. That's a, that's a great moment, really. Really is, yeah. She got to hear people genuinely appreciating something that she was scared to do. And it's cool to think that there are people who don't know the that the ending's not the ending, but it's also that moment for those of us who do, without realizing it, it's, the, it's like you just heard the theme to Jaws. You don't see the fucking shark fin yet. Right. Because you've just seen this great moment and everything's ending, and we know... It's like Tarantino going, man, hasn't them, hasn't these two days been great? Don't you love these characters? Well, hold on to your fucking asses, folks, because we're going to jump ahead six months to the day, and you're going to have to figure out what's happening next. Because it's like, like I remember yeah. seeing it the first time, just being like anxious, you know, like after seeing Saving Private Ryan the first time, every time I'm going to watch it again, it's like, all right, I got to get through 20 minutes of D-Day. Oh, it's kind of like, you're like, oh, yeah. and every time I saw it, I was like the same. I was like, cool, here we go. All right, D-Day, here we go. Here we go. 20 minutes. And then sitting through this, I'm like, all right, Tarantino, I don't know what he's going to do with this fucking film right now. So yeah. here we go. You know, like, fuck, I just, I like, I really like this lady. Like, we're going to butcher her now. Like, all right, I guess I'm going to hold on for this. And then when it ends, you're like, that didn't go the way I thought. It's all over. And, and you know, and, and, you know, Cliff, the ambulance goes off and Cliff is now talking to JC ring. And of course he's talking to Sharon via the intercom there. When they let him in, as you talked about earlier, the camera pulls back 
Now we're, we're going over the house. We're seeing him walk up the driveway. And then ominous music is playing. And, and it's kind of sad. It says, once upon a time, dot, dot, dot. And then it comes up within Hollywood. Well, that music, I'm sure you know this. That music, um, I thought this was really interesting. It's from a movie called Judge Roy Bean. And, and I'm misquoting it. But the, the Judge Roy Bean starts with a, uh, a card on, on the camera that says, this is not the way it happened, but it's the way it should have happened. So he was even so intentional with that music that was playing, because what he's saying is this is not how it happened, but it's how it should have happened. And and ever since I read that and learned that, it just brings a whole new meaning to it. And and honestly, I also get sad because then the movie's over. I'm like, damn. <laughs> like, I yeah, I know. I know. To me, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, is a world you want to live in. I mean, it's just like, yeah, you, know, you want to hang out with these guys and be in there. But yeah, yeah, you're right. For those who don't know and uh, what happened to her, and it's interesting stuff, man. Yeah. And now it's time to read the verdict. And in the case of this film, our Matt Helm masterpiece of The Wrecking Crew, was Tarantino inspired by this film, or did he nod off? I mean, or did he rip it off? You know, I think I think he was uh, inspired by his memories as being a six-year-old Quentin Tarantino and seeing this movie and uh, and, and wanting to pay homage, homage, homage to that world. And homage, yeah. Homage, yeah, yeah. homage. I mean, he was definitely inspired. I mean, right? I mean, you you can't, if you're going to tell this, the story of Sharon Tate, especially the story of Sharon Tate 1969, this movie has to come up. And like you said, Bruce Lee is such a great plot point. And so I think it was an inspiration. And you know what? At the end of the day, it's a fun movie. Now it's horribly, it hasn't aged well, it's racist, it's sexist, everything else. <laughs> but it's also... What it was, man, it's colorful, um, it's 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 fun, it's dancing, it's kind of sexy, and it just kind of embodies that that world that he was trying to portray of, of what night the sixties were before what happened to Sharon when it when it all changed, of course, in the seventies, you know. And if you're a fan of Austin Powers, it may be the major influence this was on yeah. this film. If, yeah, if 100%, Dean Martin yeah. had any comedic talent, this would have been Austin Powers. <laughs> well, hey, it is what it, it is. is, what it it is, is gone. You know what? Yeah. It's, it, if you're a fan of all this stuff, it's worth a watch. Why not, man? I did 24 films. There's so many more you could do, and every single one of them, whether I liked them or not, was worth seeing the inspirations and the moments and going, oh, they're worth it. Even though I have them ranked on my on my letterbox from one to twenty four, and this does not go high. I, I don't. It's not the movie. worst though. It's not the worst, but it's in the ballpark yeah. for sure. Like I said, I watched it twice out of respect for you being on your show. I watched it that second time. That was tough. <laughs> I appreciate it because you took one for the team. Because I was like, after the one time, I was like, look, I get, I, I get the gist of this bad boy. Like, I don't. I'm gonna erase it from my memory. Although now every time I see it, once in my time, I'm like, fuck that movie. <laughs> In the case of The Wrecking Crew, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. All right, let's wrap it up for you. Now, which of these two films, and this, this, this these are all softball questions at this point because we're pretty sure where these are going, but which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more and which would you recommend to my listeners? I, I'm going to say I enjoy The Bandit more. Great documentary, a lot of fun. However, for your listeners, I'm going to recommend them both. If you're a Tarantino fan, I think you got to put in your 90 minutes and watch and also watch The Wrecking Crew. So I'm going to recommend them both, but The Bandit's a far more enjoyable experience. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references or influences within Tarantino films? Oh, absolutely. The Bandit totally did. I had much more appreciation for the relationship between Bert and, and Hal, of course, than Rick and Cliff. The work that they did... Um, it shines a lot of light, like you said, on what Rick could have been, what Cliff could have been. So absolutely, that that really opened my eyes up to some stuff. The Wrecking Crew, like I said, I was like, all right, I, I guess, you know, I, I appreciate more the pure joy of of Sharon, how, how she's represented in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
So I guess I got that from it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see the inspiration for sure. And finally, did your opinion on Mr. Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching the films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak? And if so, in what way? That's a tough one. Um, no. No, I don't think so. You know, only because um, I've resigned myself to the fact that this guy's seen more stuff, knows more stuff than me. So you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm... So no, I... I I have to say no. And the reason I say that, like I said, I'd have to watch a thousand more movies to even kind of start to really be able to pull all the references he's pulled his, throughout his lifetime. So if anything, it's giving me an appreciation for what he does. But no, I mean, I I, I figured as much. I, I knew going into this and, and watching these, this documentary, this movie, that I was going to be just kind of more in awe of what he does. So I kind of came, I expected to have more of an appreciation for him. And that's a wrap on this season's Under the Influence series. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Tom Hippler, host of the Fanacheck Podcast, for joining me today. I had a fucking blast investigating with him whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his self-proclaimed magnum opus, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I hope you, my listeners, have enjoyed our journey through some of the movies that were major influences on his films to see if he just referenced them or blatantly ripped them off. Now, the unanimous consensus this season has been that Tarantino referenced or paid homage to these movies, but is not the rip-off artist his detractors love to claim him to be. But don't take my word for it. Watch the films yourself and draw your own conclusions. Now, you can find the links to the Fanacheck podcast and the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Ian Schultz from PsychotronicCinema.com joins me once again for our monthly Himmel devotional. This time we're taking a deep dive into the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood soundtrack. And be sure to join us again next season for our Pulp Reflection series as every month myself and my special guests will be taking a retrospective look at Pulp Fiction as it turns 30. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man. An exceptional beard production.